BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, what's up? Uh, I'm Tanner. And this is the Monster Slug Podcast. And this is said we're talking about California. But, and the monsters in it. First, let's do a little history lesson of California. The, the first Spanish missionaries arrived in California in the 1700s. But California didn't become a U.S. territory until 1847. As part of the treaty ending the Mexican-American War, shortly thereafter, the mission discovery of gold at Sutler's Mill in 1848 inspired a wave of settlers to head to the West Coast in search of fortune. In 1850, California became the 31st state and is now the third largest state behind Alaska and Texas. With millions of acres of farmland, California leaves the U.S in agricultural production. The state is also home to famous cultural institutions and national parks, including Hollywood, Disneyland, Yosemite National Park, Alcatraz, Angel Island, and the Golden Gate Bridge. California became a state on September 9, 1850. California's capital is Sacramento. California has a population of 37,253,956. California is 163,694 square miles in area. The Golden uh, California has the names of the Golden State, the Land of Milk and Honey, the Aldorado State, and the Grape State. California's motto is Eureka, which means I have found it. The uh, state tree is the California redwood. The state flower is the poppy. The state bird is the California valley quail. It's interesting facts of California. Following 
James Marshall's discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill in Coloma in 1848, California's population leaped from 14,000 to 250,000 in only four years. Between 1850 and 1859, miners attracted 28,280,711 oh, 28, 28, fine ounces of gold. California has the largest economy in the United States. In, 1890, in 1997, was the first state to reach the $1,000,000,000 benchmark in gross state product. In 2012, California was ranked the ninth largest economy in the world. California grows more than 3.3 million tons of grapes, of wine grapes, and over 540,000 across on over 540,000 acres each year and produces roughly 90% of all U.S. wine. The highest and lowest points in the continental United States are located within 100 miles of one another in California. Mount Whitney measures 14,505 feet and Bad Water Basin in Death Valley is 282 feet below sea level. Considered to be the hottest, driest place in the United States, Death Valley often reaches temperatures greater than 120 degrees Fahrenheit during the summer and averages only around 2 inches of rain each year. With a trunk slightly greater than 102 feet in, circ in circumference, the General Sherman in Sequoia National Park is the largest living tree by volume in the, in the world. It is estimated to be somewhere between 1800 to 2700 years old. Southern California has about 10,000 earthquakes each year. Although only 15 to 20 of them have a magnitude greater than 4.0. Despite its urbanization and the loss of land to industry, California still leads the country in agricultural production. About one half of the state's land is federally owned. National parks located throughout the state are devoted to the preservation of nature and natural resources. That's really good. That's really interesting stuff. That was by History.com is from the editors. It was on May March 13, 2019. Okay, alrighty. Well, let's get into the monsters now. First monster we're going to talk about is the Lone Pine Mountain Devil. I'm reading from the Cryptid, the cryptid Wiki. Some early predatory birds and feathered dinosaurs had multiple wings on both their arms and legs. These creatures were known as Microraptoria, or Microraptors. One of the largest of these multiple winged creatures was known as Cynorhinthosaurus, which was suspected to be venomously venomous by certain grooves running down the outer surface towards the rear of the tooth. A feature seen only in venomous animals such as snakes and the venomous gila monster lizard. North American folklore also speaks of multiple winged creatures with venomous veins and talons. The Lone Pine Mountain Devil is a winged carnivore of North American folklore. Some believe it to be a West Coast relative of the New Jersey Devil. One early account by a priest described them as winged demons. Sent from the depths of hell, also referring to, also referred to as the California Mountain Devil, 
the animal is said to be a bat-like creature, bat-like legendary creature or cryptid believed to inhabit the wilderness and mountainous regions of the American Southwest and Northern Mexico. The Lone Pine Mountain Devil is usually described as a large, furry, multi-winged creature with razor-like talons and multiple layers of deadly venomous veins. The scientific community considers the Lone Pine Mountain Devil to be a combination of folklore and misidentification rather than, rather than a real creature. Since 1928, there have not been any significant or credible sightings of the Lone Pine Mountain Devil, and there are no existing images of the creature caught on film. Its name may come from a combination of one of it, if its alleged habits in the Sierra Nevada mountain range outside the town of Lone Pine, California, and the brutal business of its attack. The creature is believed to slaughter its prey by attacking the torso and head of the victim. Most wild animal attacks stem from the need to eat the meat of its prey, whereas the mountain devils are said to indulge only on the soft cartridge areas of their face and torso, while leaving the remaining meat to rot or for other animals to eat. Earlier settlers, including the 49ers, began spreading tales of the creature's existence after numerous coyote and bobcat carcasses were found in the rough desert mountain wilderness of the southwest in the mid-19th century. It is not known when or who first coined the name Lone Pine Mountain Devil. The Mountain Devil became legend as the settlers told each other tales of finding entire convoys of ventures families, and gold prospectors who had been murdered, their fates left unrecognizable, and their torsos appeared to have been eaten clean to the bone. Since the early 1900s, signs of, have dropped significantly. Some attribute the massive population influx of the early 20th century to the regions of Southern California, Los Angeles, and San Diego areas as to the disappearance of the alleged beast. Okay, according to North American Cryptozoology Center, Lone Pine Mountain Devils only attack creatures who dwarf the ambience and inner peace of its natural habitat. True believers of the creature's existence seen Lone Pine Mountain Devil as a keeper of the peace of sorts, as a sanctity of the natural wonders of the region. They view the Mountain Devil's normal food of prey Coyote, bobcats, humans, etc., to be one of those who destroy the natural elements of the region and do not contribute to the regeneration of the forest. One popular rumor states that those who disrespect nature, the wilderness, or the existence of the Lone Pine Mountain Devil are targeted as prey by the creature. The best known document documentation of human interaction with the Lone Pine Mountain Devil came in 1878. When a stagecoach train of Spanish settlers disappeared in the Sierra Nevada mountains in Southern California, a group of 37 settlers, men, women, and children, vanished without a trace for two months, after which the rotted corpses were discovered by a team of copper miners. Weeks passed since their scheduled arrival at a missionary about 110 miles north of San Diego, when a lone priest, Father Judas Martinez, approached the mission. He was weak thirsty, and hungry. He had no horse and no supplies, only the clothes on his back and a journal. 
Upon questioning, the priest informed the others that while on his journey, he had taken a vow of silence when confronted by the beast, damned by the good lord. The last entry in his journal was related to the disappearance of the Spanish convoy in the mountains, and it describes the others worried. Worry from the cross-continent journey taking part in the celebration to honor St. Roderick. The celebration escalated into a righteous orgy, and the settlers began to, to burn trees for heat and light. And as the party carried on in the dark hours, into the dark hours of the night, the priest writes that he took refuge by himself in a small tent on the outside of the convoy, watched as winged demons swarmed from the trees and attacked the settlers. This final entry journal read, My God, my God. They are all gone. The winged demons have risen. What sin have they committed against each other and thy sacred earth? May the forgiving Lord not abandon their souls, which were taken from them into the depths of hell, and through the earthly fires of man. A soul tree remained on the mountain's peak, and the, devil, and the devils that spared them returned to the refuge of the lone pine on the mountains. After Years of decline, the new millennium has seen a sudden jump in mountain devil sightings. California cryptozoologists have stated that they have recorded an exponential rise between 2003 and 2010. Local authorities are currently investigating the disappearance of a group of local high school students missing in the Death Valley region since March 2010. Wow. Go a little break. Okay, welcome back. Next up is the Fresno alien or the Fresno Nightcrawler. The humanoid cryptid. The Fresno Nightcrawler, also known as the Fresno alien, is a cryptid that has made two appearances so far one in Fresno, California, and the other in Yosemite National Park. In both sightings, it's only seen in video footage. However, a man Poland has claimed to have seen the creature. It is also said to resemble the caramel area creature. The, uh, this is from the caramel area creature. The witness, a six-year-old ex-marine yet to be named, and his wife were driving near Caramel on December 12, 2014, when they came over a hill and saw a seven-foot-tall slender gray creature, which is now known as the caramel area creature. The witness said the following. We recently brought a pl- uh, sorry. We recently bought a place in the Four Hill area, which is in southeast Highland County. We first noticed after about three days of living here that we suddenly have a perfect circle that says fresh green no matter what weather. And in our front yard on Friday night, the twelfth, we were driving home. After turning on Carmel Road, which leads to our road, we went around the curve of the Caramel Church and then up on a small incline, approximately 10 feet over the incline, in front of our truck, the alien ran across the road into the woods. There have been many possible sightings of the Nightcrawler in, in the form of the Caramel area creature, a thin, armless, pale white humanoid creature seen in Ohio. Uh, night colors. The creature has also been spotted in Yosemite, where footage was taken was again taken from what appears to be another 
security camera. This time, there are two creatures, one being very small, less than 5 meters, and the feet of the creature can be clearly seen, as well as what appears to be some sort of webbing connected the knees to the upper body, on, at least. Okay. The cryptid has also been videotaped in Poland, this time from what appeared to be a handheld camera judging from the shakiness of the footage. The creature cannot be seen for too long, but appears to have similar traits to the larger one taped in Yosemite. Some explanations of what the it is. It's either it's an alien or a tessellal brain, a new species, possibly a primate with short arms, a misidentified gazelle standing upright, pants or a puppet on a wire, possibly an entirely new kind of animal, possibly mammal. Fresno nightcrawlers appear to be relatively short creatures, approximately 1.5 meters, with most of their height being made up of their legs as they possess an extremely small upper body. It's hard to find details in the upper body of the cryptid due to the poor quality of, the, of its footage. It is extremely thin, white humanoid with no discernible arms. A larger specimen appears to have webbing connected from each knee to the torso. The cryptid appears to have very short, thin, and stilt-like feet. It is hard to judge the characteristics of the cryptid in the footage due to the poor quality. The caramel air creature is tall and gray, with really no arms and long muscular legs. He's bipedal and walks in odd manner with his backwards bending knees. It resembles the Fresno Nightcrawler. While there have been claims that they are a part of Native American folklore in the region, this has been debunked. A first sign of a Fresno Nightcrawler happened in Fresno, California by a man named Jose. Jose has a friend's camera watching his front lawn I looked at the camera when he heard a dog barking. The first known nightcrawler is most known for being one of the two feature video cases on the second episode of Sci-Fi's Fact or Fake Paranormal Files. Teams deemed the nightcrawler unexplainable. It's also now considered a fun art legend and an endearing addition to pop culture. Some of the sightings are actually a pair of white pants being puppeteered. Therefore, a hoax. The alleyway gift of the Fresno Nightcrawler was created by YouTuber Captain Disillusion by walking down the alleyway with a melon and using a digital manipulation to remove the top half of his body. This purpose to demonstrate how easily videos of cribbits can be pacified. Overall, there are some evidence, but some evidence points towards the Nightcrawler being a hoax. Interesting. It's like a no arms, like white human creature with like no arms, and like very long slender legs. Where you're looking, all right. On to the next one. All right, next up, we got the ghost deer. So, the short one, the ghost deer, also known as the albino deer, is a ghostly animal said to haunt the canyons of Mount Eddy in Northern California. According to legend, when shot at, bullets will fly right through the deer or miss it. The animal also seems to appear and disappear with no traces of it. Attempts have been made to track its prints only to find that they simply end at one point. 
There are no known accounts of the of the ghost deer. And the ghost deer, according to legend, is a buck that looks something like a large elk with large antlers ending in ten to twelve points. In contrast to relatively small normal Californian deer. Well, most hunters believe it weighs 240 to 250 pounds, though others believe it is actually a ghost. Yeah, that's pretty short. Let's go to the next one for the another break. Look at my notes. Yeah, it's freaking raining so freaking bad here today. Cactus Cat. A cactus Cat is a mythical creature and fearsome creature that has been reported in the American Southwest. It is described as a bobcat-like animal with thorn-like fur, sharp bones protruding from its front legs, and a branch tail. The Cactus Cat has been sightings in the southwestern desert in states such as California, Nevada, and New Mexico. Cowboys and pioneers in the 19th century reported these strange beasts coming out at night, slashing open cacti exposing the sap. On later nights, the creature was said to drink the fermented juice. This caused the cats to enter an intoxicated state, stumbling around and rarely attacking travelers. Attacks by these strange environment, though considered rare, did happen from time to time. With many frontiersmen walked up to, the, to find wealth on their body, Waking up to find welts on their bodies from the cat's barbed tail. Despite these attacks, the cat's cat was not considered an aggressive creature set towards the cacti. The critter was also known to have a unique and haunting wail that could be heard at night through a darkened desert, along with a dry sound of its bones rubbing together. The story of the cat's cat is probably fueled by numerous case, cases of misidentification, most likely being a bobcat. Lion or porcupine. The cat's whale may have also been that of a puma. It's also likely that the ephemeral cactus cat was never believed to exist and like most fearsome critters was a product of a few bored woodsmen on a warm desert night. Uh, it could also be a species of bobcat with quills. Okay. The cactus cat appeared in the animated cartoon The Secret Saturdays. Yeah. Interesting stuff. I feel pretty short too. Let's go with another one. Let's go with another one. This is Carposaurus. This is pretty long. I can read this. Okay. Dude, oh, wait, this game's coming up, man. And Christmas. Happy turkeys and food. And cookies, yeah, let's go. Okay. The uh, elusive cub 
Carborosaurus, Sea Serpent, Dinosaur, or Myth it's by Kimberly Lynn. It was published on November 5th, 2010 on historicmysteries.com. There are many cryptic creatures and the entire field of cryptozoology is dedicated to their study. By definition, a cryptid is an animal whose existence is questionable. In the waterways of Pacific North America, one such creature, described as a giant pleosaur-like serpentine animal, has confounded witnesses for at least a hundred years. Its name is Caborosaurus. Although there are, have been 200 to 300 reports, Caddy, not unlike Loch Ness Monster, has proven elusive. Unfortunately, there is no hard evidence of the sea creature. However, the possibilities, possibilities are intriguing. I'll buy endless. Is this cryptid some kind of undocumented sea serpent, a relic, an aid to dinosaurs, or just a mythological fabulation? If you remember from the Alaskan episode, I already talked about this creature. I already talked about Katie from Alaska. Mariners have been reporting sea creatures. If you haven't heard, read, heard that episode, you can go back and listen to it. This is the Monster Lightning of Alaska. Should be my uh, second episode. Okay, yeah. Continue on. Uh, Mariners have been reporting sea serpents for thousands of years, and nearly all cultures around the world have embraced its mythology in one form or another. However, Caborosaurus is specific to the Northwest American and its waters. This mega serpent probably makes appearance off the coast of Canada, British Columbia lakes around Alaskan waters, and as far south as San Francisco. A Monterey Bay in California, even the Inuit people report of a similar creature. What does the Cabosaurus look like? Named for numerous sightings in Cabora Bay in Victoria, Caddy descriptions very widely. In general, the adults are up to 40 to or 50 feet in length, but juveniles are 10 to 15. They have slender, scaly, elongated bodies like a large lizard. Or giant eel. In fact, cryptozoologists have classified the sea serpent as a reptile and believe it may be a relic from the age of the dinosaurs, perhaps a pleosaur. Its head looks like a camel or sheep and it almost always possesses fins or flippers. However, the number of fins, the location, and their descriptions differ. Some references have indicated that the rear fin seems to lead to a tail that fans out. The Naden Harbor Carcass. There are black and white photos from 1937 showing a large, showing a, a large, a long creature that fishermen have pulled out of the stomach of a whale near the Queen Charlotte Islands. At the time, experts sent out tissue samples to the PC Professional Museum for tests. One of the samples became lost. Experts tentatively deemed the other a fetal baling whale. However, eyewitnesses said there is no way that it can have been a fetal bailing whale. Nonetheless, cryptozoologists considered the photo of the Navy Harbor Carthus shown below to be a compelling piece of evidence. Uh, in the 1990s, Edward Bosville, a zoologist and Ball Libon, an oceanographer, took an interest in caddy. They followed and studied hundreds of reports, photos, and specimens of lake creatures and sea serpents. Additionally, they classified a new species for caddy and named it 
Carbosaurus Whistler. In 1995, the two men published Carbosaurus, Survivor from the Deep. In the book, as quoted by Coleman and Ed Bosfield on Darren Zolder's Dies, they give a systematic review of observations analysis of biological characteristics of our elusive cryptic friend. Bosfield was born at the southern point of Lake Okanaga, which is famous for its own lake serpent, the Ogopogo. Which I can't talk about in episode. It too has a hunch of science. Bosfield felt that the evidence strongly supports the existence of a large marine cryptid that is probably related to Ogopogo and even a lot of monster. He also proposed that, that before Dan propelled, a sea serpent followed salmon up the Columbia River to Lake oh, sorry, I'm talking going on you. To Lake Okanaga, where a juvenile may have been trapped. When Ed Bosfield died in 2016, Lambo said, In contrast to many professional zoologists who fear association with those flaky cryptozoologists, Ed considered the antidotal evidence for Caddy as a challenge worth scientific attention. In 1968, Captain William Hagelud caught something strange. He believed that it was a baby sea serpent. According to Hagelud, it was 16 inches long with scales. It saw it had a tail like a flipper and two additional flippers on its body. Unfortunately, Captain tossed the creature back before anyone could photograph or study it. Additionally, it was a year before he recounted the story officially. Bothville and Lee Bond believed he had seen none other than Caddy. Darren Nash, Michael Woodley, and Cameron McCormick analyzed all these possible candidates of a non cryptic nature to identify Hadler's sea serpent. They believe the monster was really just a pipefish after all. They published their data in September 2011 in Scientific America. A baby sea serpent no more interpreting Hadler's juvenile carbosaurus. Real science does not begin and end with the collection of antidotes and photos, thus, Mosville and LeBon face severe criticism by the scientific community. Next at all, I've referred to the work of Bofield and LeBon as a biased and unscientific approach to the investigation of the subject and bad science, and it falls more into a category of speculation and pseudoscience. Still, there are many believers in Caddy, in this cock. Bay, Alaska, the local fisherman Kelly Nash probably filmed a creature he leaves in a sea serpent in 2009. Discovery aired a short clip of the footage in 2011 in the program Hill Stranded. Here is a short edited version. Okay. Scott Martis, an investigator of the Lake Champlain Monster, published a fa- rather fascinating paper about the Inn Harbor titled, What Was the Nathan Harbor Carcass, a.k.a. Cabosaurus Wilson. Martyrs prefers a number of creatures that sometimes fit the description of Caddy during various stages of decomposition. After all, once the flesh has run off, oftentimes the vertebrae creature that washes up on the shore is a long, slender carcass that bears no resemblance to its original form. This leaves room for much speculation, as in the case of the Nathan Harbor Carcass. Although, Although Mar- oh, okay. no. Mardis draws no conclusions 
One of the main candidates for the animal needing harbor photo may be decomposed basking shark as seen below. It's catty real. Throughout recorded history, people have told stories of serpentine creatures in oceans and lakes. The science additionally span a range of places, yet they have many similarities in common. Thus, it's hard to dismiss the possibility existence of a caddy-like creature. Consequently, the attempts by Bozeman and LeBond to classify caddy and to boldly publish their determinations becomes perhaps unsustainable. Who can blame them for seeing the truth of a caddy in their evidence? Whether or not the pesky law expectations that work in their research is another matter altogether. Still, the fact remains that not one carcass, skeleton, or life specimen has been found and identified as a cryptid sea serpent. This does not mean Kai Force isn't real, this means that we haven't found the unfreeable smoking gun yet, if there is one. And just as when the world went from being flat to round, thanks to deviant philosophers, Nigerians will have to rethink giant creatures if it is ever found. Alright. Okay, yeah, I need a break now. <sighs> so, I'm talking. Okay. Now for another monster. Hyman Pon. Hyman Pon. Hogbear. Writing from. Mouth, right in from the mouth of the Columbian River, south or to Klamath, woodsmen report the existence of a bear known as the Hyman Palm Hog Bear. This is a small, sharp-nosed, curly-haired variety of the black and brown bear of the coast regions. But not be confused with the peak heel cinnamon. To appreciate the points of this animal, one must remember that hog Ranches are commonly in northwestern California. The county, the country, the earth, particularly adapted to hog raising industry, would be attractive and highly profitable were it not for the existence of the hog bear. <coughs> Sorry. Mountain slopes are converted with scrubbery and creeping oaks, with bare bridges across a sweet and very nutritious acorns. These naturally ripen earths. Earliest upon the lower slopes where the young hogs begin to feed. As acorns higher up the slopes begin to ripen, hogs ascend to the mountains each week, finding them a few hundred feet higher and many pounds fatter. About Christmas time, the last of the acorns reach on the upper slopes, and the hogs have by that time become so fat that their legs scarcely reach the ground, and the slightest jar is all that the hog bears gets in his destructive work. He mooches along the base of the mountain. For the rancher has time to rustle his pork, and finding hogs so plentiful and so helplessly fat, he takes just one bite out of the bag of each, leaving the porkers squealing with agony and the rancher squeeing, swearing with rage. Ah, got hair in my mouth. Uh, while examining timber on uh, a uh, tributary of the Columbus River, California, Mr. Eugene S. Bruce of the Forest Services captured a Cub hog bear, where he presented to the National Zoo in Washington. Its development will be watched with interest in its mission studied by the members of the Biological Survey. In the tradition of American tall tales and folklore, not all the narratives are complete fabrications. 
Instead, our highlight both stories elaborated on personal experiences. The narrative of hyphen hog bear, a hog bear cub is found in Columbus River, California, and taken by Eugene S. Bruce to National Zoo in Washington, D.C. This account is also recorded in The Land We Live In, the book Conservation by Overton W. Price. In this version, Bruce did in fact catch a cub within his bare hands while trekking through the California mountains. The occupying image stated underneath it, the bear is now in the Washington Zoo. I'll buy an animal picture is primarily not a hog bear. Likewise, in the sketch of the snow geyser, Emmett F. Heldred, 1883 to 1963, a gifford pincock, Melilla D., who, while serving the escape in the Everglades, encounters the dreadful swamp worm, which afterwards devours the criminal. Episode, which is doubtfully a fanciful isolation of Elbert's backward background as a timber cruiser in southern Florida. Other persons referenced in fearsome creatures are John P. Whitling, 1878 to 19-something, who was professor of forestry at the post Pennsylvania State Forest Academy in the University of Minnesota. A.P.A.B. Patterson, Forest Service, Big Cole Kinson, Gus Dumont, Bill Murphy, and John Gray. In the tradition of American tall tales and folklore, not all these. Why are you repeating yourself, Oracle? Okay, what the fuck? Yeah. These freaking Oracles like to fucking repeat themselves. What do you have, guys? Look at this one, and this one, that's something. Here's one of the first scary spooky to me. Dock waters of the St. Lucia Range by Darcy Nadell on August 14th. August 4th, 2018. In Santa Lucia Mountains in California, local legend speaks of mysterious dark figures standing on the peaks that often places ordinary people would not be able to climb to, and suddenly staring at nothing. They have been given the name of the Dark Watchers. The Dark Watchers have been seen all along the Santa Lucia Range in California, mostly around twilight or dawn. They are typically described as 7 to 10 feet tall, though some who claim to have seen them have described them as little people, contracting the majority of sightings. The dark watchers are human-shaped or at least humanoid-shaped. They stand completely motionless as they look out to the sea, appear to wear long, long black cloaks and broad-brimmed black hats, and occasionally spotted holding a staff or a walking stick. They have been observed to have facial features, but that's perhaps because no one has been able to get close. And never been observed to have face features, but that's perhaps because no one has been able to get a close enough look. Anyone who attempts to get that close has found that the figures simply vanish, leaving no footprints or any other evidence that they were ever there to begin with. According to legend, there are also some 
more requirements for dog walkers to make themselves known to hikers in the mountains. Those who are carrying guns or wearing weatherproof clothing scare them off for some reason. They prefer to only reveal themselves to hikers who are wearing more old-fashioned garb, according to paranormal investigator Jason Offit. There is one oft-repeated story of a local man who went hiking in the mountains sometime in 1960. He saw the dock watchers and somehow had enough time to study and process exactly what it was he was seeing. He called out to some fellow hiker in order to alert them of the presence of these mysterious figures, but when he turned back to where the figures had been standing, they had vanished. Naturally, the story is vague and there is nothing to indicate that this encounter took place, but it does seem to mirror the experience of others who have claimed, who have claimed to see the, the dog watchers. If a person was to look for information on the dark watchers online or in books that collect California ghost stories, they would likely find more or less the same brief description in the vast majority of sources. Brian Dunning of Skeptoid noticed this as well and believes that the authors of these descriptions have simply been copying the same story for years. Dunning points to three sources that the story might have been originated from a John Steinbeck short story titled Flight, a Robinson Jeffers poem titled such castles you gave to me and non specific assertion that the stories of duck watchers originated with stories from too much Native American tribe. Logically, the stories of duck watchers likely predate Steinbeck's and Jeffers' contributions to the legend. As for claims of too much origin, there doesn't seem to be any validity to it. The most authoritative resource on too much is a book by Thomas Blackburn titled December's Child. A book of Jimosh oral narratives doesn't mention Doc Waters or anything that bears close enough resemblance. The more likely explanation of why Doc Waters have been linked to the Jimosh tribe is that claiming their American origins has a tendency to make legends sound more legitimate. <coughs> okay. Thomas Steinbeck, uh, son of John Steinbeck, collaborated with artist Benjamin Broad on a book titled. In search of the Dark Watchers, chronicling the legend's history and recording interviews with locals who claim to have encountered them in this book. Steinbuck and Brode claimed that the term was originally coined by the Romans, and that Dark Watchers were originally believed to be a physical creatures that took the form of guardian animals or other supernatural beings, with a comparison to creatures like fairies or ghosts. Some variations of the legends also claim that the stories originated with an early Spanish sellers called the figures Los Vigilantes Oscuros. Unfortunately, there is no way to pinpoint the actual origins of the stories of, dark, of the Dark Watchers other than local news, locals knew about them prior to 1937 before Jeffers' poem was published. Okay. Uh. Uh, many explanations. <laughs> uh, many explanations for dark watchers have been proposed. One common theory is that there are illusions or hallucinations caused by feelings of exhaustion or isolation during hiking. Another theory blames infrasound, low-frequency sounds that have been suggested to cause feelings of fear in people who hear them. The Broker Spectre, an optical illusion that can cast a magnified shadow. Or clouds or fog has also been proposed as a possible natural explanation for the mysterious signs. 
A less natural explanation for dark watchers links them to reports of shadow people due to the similar physical appearance of particularly notorious hat man, often seen by sufferers of sleep paralysis. Also, it has been noted that the stories of dark watchers likely predate reports of the hat man. Given how localized the dark watchers stories are, they're likely, they're likely not actually related. Many witnesses and locals believe the dark watchers are spirits. Though the type of spirit they are is debated. Some say they bring bad luck. Others claim they are spirits of the more benevolent kind. Likely owns the fact that there has been no reported encounters that involve violence. So others claim the Dark Watchers are physical manifestations, manifestations of the Grim Reaper. So what are to make of the stories of the Dark Watchers? All things considered, there isn't much to go on other than stories of witnesses. But locals believe in Dark Watchers and the other outside witnesses are firmly convinced of their existence. Okay. Alright, okay, let's let's one let's little creep it before we get to uh start this episode. Should we Okay. Yeah. The Central American Wind Tosser is an aggressive, fearsome creature critter from lumberjack tales of North America in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. This creature lives in the coast ranges of California. The region of Isthmus is not a solitary creature. There are multiple wind tossers in a family or pack. No one knows which. It has a, tri- it has a triangle, triangular body with a neck and short tail that can swivel around. A head and tail can spin around 100 times per minute. It isn't very big, but it has a big ego. It is extremely aggressive. It has three sets of legs which help it to stabilize itself during earthquakes which are frequent in the region. These legs are positioned all around the body, enabling it to walk upside down, sideways, and, and on the ground. The animal's fur is quite bristly and flints at a sharp angle. This animal causes frequent trouble to men and is very difficult to kill even if you shoot it, club it, or really do anything to it. It will just thrash around, spin, and scream. The only way, the only way to kill the creature is to trap it in a flume, pipe, or log. In this pipe, the wind tosser will try to walk in all directions and tear itself apart. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a damn, yeah, it's like legs all over. It's, it's a rendering of it. It's weird looking. Alright, you ready? Ready for it? Keep listening. Keep listening to this episode. Because we're about to go real big. Keep listening. It's coming up soon. We all know real life can suck sometimes, and your boss accidentally seeing you in your underpants on Zoom last week doesn't help any. That's why Reluctantly Codependent Sisters, the Shira and Rashalia, keep you enthralled and in stitches every week with their podcast, Legendary Africa. Every Monday and Friday, we take you on a journey of mythical lands, magical objects, and monstrous creatures, both ancient and modern. Find Legendary Africa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you feed your ears. And remember, stay safe 
Stay sexy. And stay legendary. Alrighty, people. It's time for the main event of this episode about California cryptids, California monsters. You know them. You love them. California is the second state comes to sightings of this creature. He's the one. He's the only Bigfoot. Or Sasquatch. In North American folklore, Bigfoot or Sasquatch are said to be hairy, upright, walking, ape-like creatures that dwell in the wilderness and leave footprints. Depictions often portray them as a missing link between humans and the human ancestors or other great apes. They are strongly associated with the Pacific Northwest, particularly Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia, and individuals claim to see the creature across North America. Over the years, these creatures have inspired numerous commercial ventures and hoaxes. The plural nouns, Bigfoot and Bigfeet, are both in use. Folklorists trace the figure of Bigfoot to a combination of factors and sources, including folklore surrounding the European wild man figure, folk belief among Native Americans and loggers, and the cultural increase in environmental concerns. A majority of mainstream scientists have historically discounted the sense of Bigfoot, considering it to be a combination of folklore, misidentification, and hoax, rather than living animals. People who have who claim to have seen it described Bigfoot as large, muscular, bipedal, ape-like creatures, roughly 6 to 9 feet, 1.8 to 2.7 meters tall, covered in hair described as black, dark brown, or dark reddish. <clears throat> Enormous footprints for which the creatures are named claim to be as large as 24 inches, or 60 centimeters long, and 8 inches, or 27 meters wide. Some footprints casts have been also contain claw marks, making it less likely they came from known animals such as bears with five toes and claws. According to David Daigling, the legends predate the name Bigfoot. They differ in the details both visually and between families in the same community. <coughs> Ecologist Robert Pyle says the most cultures have accounts of human-like giants in their folk history expressing a need for some larger-than-life creature. Each language has its own name for the creature, featured in the local version of such legends. Many names meant something along the lines of wild man or hairy man. Also, although all other, other names described some common actions that it was said to perform, such as eating clams or shaking trees. Chief Michelle of the Nicompon Sorry, pass that around. At Linton, British Columbia, told such a story to Charles Tilltown in 1898. He named the creature by a Slavian variant, meaning the nine faced one. Members of the Lumi dealt telltales about Tikmuskus, the local version of Bigfoot. The stories are similar to each other in general description of Tikmuskus, but details differ among various family accounts concerning the creature's diet and activities. Some original versions tell of more th- of more threatening creatures. The Stiyaha or Kwiya were not total race. Children were warned against saying the names, lest the monster hear 
gun to carry off a person, sometimes to be killed. In 1847, Paul Kane reported stories by the Indians are about schools, a race of cannibalistic wild men living on a peak of Mount State Helens in southern Washington State. Less menacing versions have also been recorded, such as one in 1840 by Elkanah Walker, a Protestant missionary who recorded stories of giants among the Indians living near Spokane, Washington. The Indians said that the giants lived on and around the peaks of nearby mountains and stole salmon from the fishermen's nets. <clears throat> yeah, that's a lot, of, a lot of words. In the 1920s, Indian agent J.W. Burns compiled local stories and published them in a series of Canadian newspaper articles. They were counted told them by the Saints Isles people of Chess, Alice, and others. The St. Isles and other regional tribes maintained that the Sasquatch were real. They were offended by people telling them that the figures were legendary. According to St. Elves accounts, the Sasquatch preferred to avoid white men, spoke the Lewit language of the people of Port Douglas, British Columbia, at the head of Harrison Lake. These accounts were published again in 1940. Burns borrowed the term Sasquatch from the Alcum Sasquatch. And use this article to describe a typical single type of creature portrayed in local stories. Okay, sightings. About one third of all claims on Bigfoot sightings are located in the Pacific Northwest, with the remaining reports spread throughout the rest of North America. Bigfoot has become known as a phenomenon in the popular culture, and science has spread throughout North America. Rural areas like the Great Lakes region in the southeastern United States have been sources of numerous reports of Bigfoot science in addition to the Pacific Northwest. In the Bigfoot casebook, authors Janet and Colin Board document the science from 1888, 1818 to 1980. This is over 1,000 sightings. The debate over the legitimacy of Bigfoot science reached a peak in the 1970s. And Bigfoot has been regarded as the first widely popularized example of pseudoscience in American culture. So much so that, according to the Amer Associated Press 2014 poll, more Americans believe in Bigfoot than the Big Bang Theory. What the crap's crazy? Various explanations have been suggested for science and to offer a conjecture on what type of creature Bigfoot might be. Sometimes typically, some scientists typically attribute science either to hoaxes or to misidentification of known animals in the tracks, particularly black bears. In 2007, the Bigfoot field research organization put forward some photos which they claimed showed a juvenile Bigfoot. Pennsylvania Game Commission cover said that the photos were of a bear with mange. However, anthropologist Jeffrey Meldrum and Ohio scientist Jason Jarvis said that the proportions of the creatures were not bear-like, they were more like a chimpanzee. Hoaxes. Both Bigfoot believers and non-believers agreed that many of the reported signs are hoaxes or misdivided animals. Author Jerome Clark argues that the jacko affair was a hoax involved in the 1884 newspaper report of an ape-like creature captured in British, in British Columbia.
He cites research by John Green, who found that several contemporaneous British Columbia newspapers regarded the alleged capture as highly dubious and notes that the mainland guardian of the New Westminster, the New Westminster British Columbia wrote, surely, is written on the face of it. Tom Piscardi is a longtime Bigfoot enthusiast and CEO of Searching for Bigfoot, Inc. <clears throat> he appeared on the West Coast on the Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Radio Show on July 14th 2005 and said that he was 90% sure that his group will be able to capture Bigfoot, which he had been tracking in the Happy Camp, California area. <clears throat> a month later, he announced on the same radio show that he had access to capture Bigfoot and arranged a pay-per-view event for people to see it. He appeared on Coast to Coast AM again a few days later to announce that there was no captive Bigfoot. They blamed an unnamed woman who, for mislead, woman for misleading him. Said the show's audience was gullible. On July 9, 2008, Rick Dyer and Matthew Winton posted a video to YouTube claiming that they had discovered the body of a dead Sasquatch in a forest in northern Georgia. Tom Piscardi was contacted to investigate Dyer and Winton received US fifty thousand from Searching for Rick Inc. That's a good faith gesture. The story was covered by many major news networks, including BBC, CNN, ABC News, and Fox News. Soon after a press conference, the alleged Bigfoot body was delivered in a block of ice in a freezer with the searching for the Bigfoot team. <coughs> when, the continent, when the contents were thawed, the prisoners found that the hairs were not real, the hair was hollow, and the feet were rubber. Dyer and Whitman admitted that it was a hoax after being fronted by Steve Coles, executive director of SquatchDetective.com. In August 2012, a man in Montana was killed by a car while portraying a Bigfoot hoax using a ghillie suit. In January 2014, Rick Dyer, portrayer of a previous Bigfoot hoax, that he had killed a Bigfoot creature in December 2012 outside San Antonio, Texas. He said he had scientific tests performed on the body, from DNA tests up to three optical scans to body scans. It is the real deal. It's Bigfoot. And Bigfoot's here, and I shot it. Now I'm proving it to the world. He said that he had kept the body in a hidden location, and he intended to take it on tour across North America in 2014. He released photos of the body in a video showing a few individuals' reactions to seeing it, but never released any of the tests or scans. He refused to disclose the test results or provide biological samples. He said that the results were done by an undisclosed lab and could not be matched to identify any known animal. Dyer said that he would reveal the body and test on February 9, 2014 at a news conference at Washington University. But he never made the test results available. After Phoenix tour, the Bigfoot body was taken to Houston. On March 28, 2014, Dyer admitted on his Facebook page that his Bigfoot course was another hoax. He had paid, Charles, Chris, he had paid Chris Russell of Twist Toy Box to manufacture the prop, which he nicknamed Hank from Latex, foam, and camel hair. Dyer earned approximately $60,000 from the tour of his second fake Bigfoot course. He said he did, he did kill a Bigfoot, but did not take the real body on tour for fear that it would be stolen. 
Bigfoot performance, Groven, Grover Grants and Jeffrey H. Bourne believe that Bigfoot could be a relic population of Gigantopithecus. All Gigantopithecus fossils were found in Asia, but according to Bourne, many species of animals migrated across the Bering Land Bridge and he suggested that Gigantopithecus might have done so as well. Gigantopithecus fossils have not been found in the Americas. The only recovered fossils also, the only covered fossils are are mammals and teeth, leaving uncertainty about Campus's locomotion. Grants has argued that Campus's black cat could have been bipedal, based on the expression of the shape of its mandible. However, the liverable part of the mandible is not present in any fossils. An alternative view is that Campus was quadrupedal. Its enormous mass would have been made difficult for it without a bipedal gait. Matt Cartmill criticizes the Gigantopithecus apostis. Trouble with this account is that Gigantopithecus was not a hominid and may be not even a crown group hominoid. If the physical evidence implies that Bigfoot is an upright biped with buttocks and a long stout, permanently adopted hollocks, these are hominid anthropomorphisms not found in other, animal, other mammals or other bipeds. It's simply unlikely that Gigantopithecus have involved these uniquely helmet traits in parallel. Bernard G. Campbell writes that Jacobus is in fact extinct has been questioned that by those who believe it survives as the Yeti of the Himalayas and the Sasquatch of North West America coast, but MS for these creatures is not convincing. <coughs> Primatologist John R. Napier and Osbardus Gordon Chansberg it's a species of Parathropus, Parathropus as a possible candidate for Bigfoot's identity, such as Parathropus robotus, which is a gorilla-like crescent skull and bipedal gait, despite the fact that fossil Parathropus are found only in Africa. Michael Rugg of the Bigfoot Discovery Museum presented a comparison between human Gigantopithecus and Megathropus skulls, reconstructed by Grover Kranz in episode 131 and 32 of the Bigfoot Discovery Museum show. He he verbally appears a modern tooth surfeit of coming from a Bigfoot to the microphone fossils he's known the worn enamel on the kissel surface. The microphone fossil originated from Asia and the tooth was found near Santa Cruz, California. Some suggest Nathandral Homo erectus or Homo hydrogenus but no remains of any other species have been found in the Americas. Mainstream scientists do not consider the subject of Bigfoot to, to be a fertile area for credible science, and there have been a similar number of formal scientific studies of Bigfoot. Evidence such as the 1967 Patterson Grimman film have provided no sort of data of any scientific value. Great apes have not been found in the fossil according to Americas. No Bigfoot remains are known to be found developed to as a cultural autonomous at the University Samurai's following scientific consensus as follows. <clears throat> it defines all logic that there is a population of these things sufficient to keep them going. What it takes to obtain any species, especially a long-lived species, is you got to have a breeding population. That requires a substantial number spread out over a fairly wide area where they can find sufficient food and shelter to keep hidden from all 
the investigators. In 1970s, when Bigfoot experts were frequently given high-profile media coverage, McClure writes the scientific community generally avoided landing crafts and still theories by debating them. Irving T. Sanderson and Bernard Hewlett Wavens have spent parts of their careers searching for Bigfoot. Later scientists who researched the topic include Jason Jarvis, Charles S. Coons, George Allen Arnoya, and William Charles Osmond Hill. Although they came to be to know the ethnic collusion, later drifted from this research, although Jarvis continues his research from his lab in Cherry Hill. Anthropologist Jeffrey Meldrum has said that the fossil remains of an ancient giant ape called Jonkos Picus could turn out to be ancestors of today's commonly known Bigfoot. John Pierce asserts that the scientific community's attitude toward Bigfoot stems primarily from insufficient evidence. Other scientists have shown various degrees of interest in the creature are David J. Dangling, George Schuyler, Russell Middlemiller, Darius Swindler, Espen Sminto, and Charles S. Kuhn. The first scientific study of evil evidence was conducted by John Napier and published in his book Bigfoot, the Yeti, and Sasquatch in Myth and Reality in 1973. Napier wrote that if a conclusion is to be reached based on scant hard evidence, science must be clear Bigfoot does not exist. However, he found it difficult to entirely direct thousands of alleged tracks scattered over 120,000 square miles or to dismiss all the many hundreds of Alvin's accounts. Napier's concluded that I am convinced that such such exists, but whatever is all is cracked up to be is another matter altogether. It must be something in West America that he's explaining. That something leaves man-like footprints. In 1974, the National Wildlife Federation funded a field study seeking Bigfoot evidence. Normal formal Federation members were involved, and the study made no normal discoveries. Beginning in the late 1970s, a physical anthropologist, Grover Grants, published several articles in four book-length treatments of Sasquatch. However, his work was found to contain multiple scientific failings, including falling for hoaxes. A study published in the Journal of Biogeography in 2009 by J.D. Lozer used ecological niche modeling on reported signs of Bigfoot, used their locations for Bigfoot's preferred ecological parameters. They found a very close match with the ecological parameters of the American black bear, Eurus Americans. They also note that upright bear looks much like Bigfoot's purported appearance and considers it highly probable that these two species should have a very similar ecological presence, proving that Bigfoot signs are likely signs of black bears. In the first systematic genetic analysis of 30 hair samples, they were expected to be from Bigfoot, Yeti, Sasquatch, Almasdei, or other anomalous primates. Only one found was to be a primate in origin. That was identified as a human. A joint study by the University of Oxford and Louisiana, Canada, Museums of Zoology, published in the proceedings of the Royal Society, Society B in 2014, the team used a previously published cleaning method to remove all surface contamination in the Brosnel McConaughey DNA. 12S parameter of sample or sequence and then compared to gen bank gen five the species origin. Uh, samples submitted were from different parts of the world, including the United States, Russia, and Himalayas, and Sumatra. 
other than one sample of human origin. All but two from common animals, black and brown bears, account for most of samples. Other animals included cow, horse, dog, wolf, coyote, sheep, goat, raccoon, porcupine, deer, and napier. Tapir. The last two samples were thought to match a fossilized genetic sample of a 40,000-year-old polar bear of the Pleistocene Epoch. However, a later study refused the findings. In the second paper, testified the Harris being a rare type of brown bear. After what the Huffington Post described as a five-year study of reported Bigfoot DNA samples, but prior to but prior to peer review that work, DNA Diagnostics, a veterinary laboratory headed by veterinarian Miller Ketchman, issued a press release on December 4, 24, on November 24, 2012, claiming that they have found proof that Scotland is a human relative that froze approximately 50,000 years ago as a hybrid cross of modern Homo sapiens with an unknown primate species. Ketchum called for this to be recognized officially, saying that the government all levels must recognize that them as an indigenous people and mainly protect their human and national rights against those who had seen in their physical and cultural differences a license hunt, trap, or kill them. In 2012, Ketchman registered the name Homo sapiens cognatus, used for the up to Homo, more familiarly known as Bigfoot or Sasquatch, as Zubank, a non governmental organization adjunct to the National Commissions of Zoological Nomophobia. According to Ari Grossman of Midwestern University, lack of formal differential diagnosis type specimen or designation of a type of specimen to provide the organism names leaves the assured name open to challenge. Failing to find a specific journal that would post the results, Ketchman announced on February 13, 2013, the research had been published in the Novo Journal of Science. The Elton Post discovered that the journal's domain was registered anonymously only nine days before the announcement. This was the only edition of Devo and was listed as Volume 1, Issue 1, with the only contents being the Ketchup paper. Shortly after publication, the paper was analyzed and outlined by Sharon Hill of Delphal News for the Community for Skeptical Inquiry. Hill reported on the Gretchen Journal that NCNA's testing and poor quality paper, saying that the few experienced dentists who read the paper reported a dismal opinion. Of it, knowing it made little sense. Science Magazine also analyzed the paper, reporting that physicists who have seen the paper are not impressed. They state the obvious no data or analysis represented that any support claims that their samples come from a new primate or human primate hybrid. Leonard Korgleck of Princeton University told the Eastern Chronicle instead, analysis either comes back as 100% human or fail in ways that suggest clinical artifacts. The website for the Novel Journal of Assessment was set up on February 4th, and there's no indication that Kevin's work only stated in it as published was peer-reviewed. Claims about the origins and characteristics of Bigfoot have crossed over with other paranormal claims, including the Bigfoot and UFOs are late, or that Bigfoot creatures are psychic or even completely supernatural. The evidence advanced sporting statistics of such a large ape like creature have been often attributed to hoaxes or delusion rather than the science of a genuine creature. In 1996, USA article, Washington State zoologist John Crane said there is no such thing as Bigfoot, no data other than the material is clearly fabricated 
that's ever been presented. In addition, scientists cite the fact that Bigfoot is likely to live in regions unusual for large non-human primate, i.e. in temperatures, latitudes, in the northern hemisphere, all nice eggs are found in tropics of Africa and Asia. There are several organizations dedicated to the research and investigation of Bigfoot. Science in the U.S. and the United States, oldest and largest significant is Bigfoot Field Researchers, Researchers Organization, the BFRO. The BFRO also provides a free database in results and other organizations. The website includes reports from across North America that have been investigated by researchers to determine credibility. In February 2016, the University of New Mexico at College a two-day Bigfoot conference at a cost of 7000 in university funds. <clears throat> Bigfoot has had a much more impact on the proper culture of Burma. When I asked for her opinion on Bigfoot in a September 27, 2002 interview on National Public Radio Science Friday, Jane Goodall said, I'm sure they exist, and later said, chuckling, well, I'm a romantic, so... Always wanted them to exist, and finally, you know, why isn't there a body? I can't answer that, and maybe they don't exist, but I want them to. In 2012, I asked not doing post, Goodhall said, I'm fascinated and would actually love them to exist, adding, Of course, it's strange that there has never been a single authentic hide or hair of a Bigfoot, but I've read all the accounts. I, uh, yeah. Alright. Three count. Alright. Take a take a quick break. Next up we'll talk about the FBI. I investigated Bigfoot. Alright. So, FBI did an investigation on Bigfoot. Here is an article from it, from History.com, by Becky Little, on June 6, 2019. Bigfoot was investigated by the FBI. Here's what they found. In 2019, in 2019, the FBI released its four-decade-old file on, on a Bigfoot inquiry. Legends of large ape-like beasts can be found all over the world. Since the 1950s, the United States version of this has been Bigfoot, and since 1976, the FBI has had a file on him. That year, Director Peter Byrne of the Bigfoot Information Center in the exhibition in Dallas, Oregon, sent the FBI about 15 hairs attached to a tiny piece of skin. Byrne wrote that the organization couldn't identify what animal, kind of animal it came from and was hoping the FBI might analyze it. He also wanted to know if anybody had analyzed the suspected Bigfoot hair before and so what the rear seclusion was. At the time, Byrne was one of the more prominent Bigfoot researchers, says Benjamin Radford, deputy editor of the Schedule Inquirer magazine. In 2019, a lot of people think of Bigfoot as being sort of silly and a joke or whatever else. But in the 1970s, Bigfoot was really, really popular. This was when the $6 million man had a cameo by Bigfoot. This was also after Roger Patterson and Roger Kremen released 
their famous video footage in 1967, supposedly showing Bigfoot in Northern California. It's worth noting that the original evidence that launched the Bigfoot craze, a trail of oversized footprints discovered in the same region in 1958, was revealed to be a prank by logger Ray L. Wallace in 2002. Many people believe the Bigfoot creature in a Patterson Grimmel film was a costume prankster as well. Burns also believes the footage is real. J. Cochran Jr., assistant director of the FBI's Scientific and Technical Service Division, wrote back to Byrne that he couldn't find any evidence of the FBI analyzing su- suspected Bigfoot hair, and that the FBI usually only examined physical evidence related to criminal investigations. Still, it sometimes made exceptions in, science, in the interest of research and scientific inquiry. Cochran said he'll make such exemption for Byrne. Unsurprisingly, Cochran found that the hair didn't belong to Bigfoot. In early 1977, he sent the hairs back to Byrne along with his scientific conclusion that the hairs are of deer family origin. Four decades later, the Big Brewer defied its Bigfoot file about its analysis. To be clear, this is not evidence that the ever endorsed existence of Bigfoot and any more U.S. military's decade-long investigation of unexplained aerial phenomenon, probably known as UFOs, as an endorsement of existence of, of aliens. All it means is that if I did a favor to a Bigfoot research effort, says, there's nothing wrong with that, but it shouldn't be mistaken for a de facto government endorsement of the reality of Bigfoot. Even so, Bigfoot believers may be tempted to spin it that way. I love the idea that there's a smoking gun in FBI files. See, look, Bigfoot must be real. Otherwise, the FBI wouldn't take it when taking it seriously, he continues. Well, the FBI don't send out team investigators to look for Bigfoot. They agree to run an analysis of 15 hairs. So, our lawyers to what is already an unusual case. 93-year-old Byrne doesn't seem to remember receiving an FBI's response that Bigfoot hair was actually deer hair. Because Byrne has been out of the country for several months, Cochran sent the letter to the Vice President of the Academy of Applied Science, which was, which was associated with Byrne's Bigfoot organ, organ, organization. The executive wrote that he would give Byrne's copies of the correspondence when he returned, yet when the FBI released its Bigfoot file, which was exclusively about Byrne's inquiry on June 5, 2019, Byrne reacted as though he was hearing that it was Deer hair, deer hair for the first time. Obviously, I can't speak for Peter Byrne, Redford says, but if you're going to make a big deal, big enough deal about this unknown species, that's when you give it to the FBI, then you're not going to want to publicize the fact that it turned out to be deer. I don't know this image. Let's follow up. Uh, this is the letter. Mr. Howard S. Curtis, I think he's a vice president, Academy of Applied Science. He's in. Dear Mr. Curtis, Harris, which he recently delivered to the FBI laboratory on behalf of the Bigfoot Information Center exhibition, has been examined by transmitted incident like microscopes. 
The damnation included the study of morphological characteristics such as root structure, mineral structure, and cup thickness in addition to scale cast. After, also, the hairs were compared directly with the hairs of known origin under a comparison microscope. It was concluded as a result of these examinations that the hairs are of deer family origins. The hair assembly spinet is being returned as an undisclosed as enclosed materials later. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty interesting. Okay. Now, we heard it a couple times. I'm talking about Bigfoot. And now, we're talking about the Patterson footage coming up next. Stay tuned on the Mustard Lynch podcast. Alrighty then. The Patterson footage. Ready into it? Let's get into it. The Patterson Gimlin film, also known as the Patterson film or the PGF, is an American short motion picture of an identified subject, which the filmmakers have said was a Bigfoot. The footage was shot in 1967 in Northern California and has since been subject to many attempts to vindicate or debunk it. The film the footage was filmed alongside Bluff Creek, a, a tributary of the Klamath River. About 25 logging road miles northwest of Orleans, California, in Del Norte County. The film site is roughly 38 miles south of Oregon and 18 miles east of the Pacific Ocean. For decades, the exact location of the site was lost, following because of regrowth of foliage that trembled after the flood of 1964. It was rediscovered in 2011. It's just south of North Carolina, segment of the creek. And probably known as the Bowling Alley. The filmmakers were Roger Patterson, February 14, 1933 to June 15, 1972, and Robert Bob Gimlin, born October 18, 1931. Patterson died of cancer in 1972 and made it right to the end that the creature of the film was real. Patterson's friend Gimlin has always died being involved in any part of, of a hoax. Patterson. Gimlin mostly avoided pub- publicly discussing the subject from at least the early 1970s until about 2005, except for three appearances when he began giving interviews and appearing at Bigfoot conferences. The film is 23.85 feet long, presented by 76.1 feet of horseback footage, as 954 frames, 954 frames runs for 59.5 seconds at 16 frames per second. The film was shot at 18 frames per second at Grover Grant's leave. The event lasted 53 seconds. The date was October 20th, 1967, according to filmmakers, although some critics believe it was shot earlier. Background. Barrison became interested in Bigfoot after reading an article around the creature by Ivan T. Sanderson in True Magazine in December 1959. In 1961, Sanderson published his encyclopedic Amble Stoneman, Legends Come to Life, a worldwide survey of accounts of Bigfoot-type creatures, including recent track finds, etc. 
the Bluff Creek area, which heightened the interest. Thereafter, Marion Place wrote, In 1962, he visited Bluff Creek and talked with a whole host of Bigfoot believers. In 1964, he returned and met a timber cruiser named Pat Graves, who drove him to Lair Meadows. There, Parrison saw fresh tracks for him uh, him an almost unbearably exciting spine chilling experience. What a tremendous beat it would be what a scientific breakthrough if could obtain unshakable evidence that these tracks were not the work of a prankster, but the actual marks of a thorough unknown creature. If he succeeded, it, he would be famous and rich. Alas, fame and fortune were not gained that year, nor the next, nor the next. Parrison invested thousands of hours and dollars combing Bigfoot in Sasquatch territory. He found constant ridicule and shortage of funds. He founded Northwest Research Foundation. Through it, he saw state funds. His funds was encouraging and enabled him to lead several expeditions. In 1966, he published a paperback book at his own expense. He had the income from his sales ancestors to the search fund to the search fund. As each winner's jaunt failed to see or capture the big monster, one by one thrill seeker seekers dropped out. Our person never gave up. Paris's book, Do Apollos the Man of America Really Exists, was still published in nineteen sixty six. The book has been characterized as little more than a collection of newspaper clippings laced together with Paris's circus poster style prose. The book, however, contains 20 pages of previously unpublished interviews and letters, 17 drawings by Parrison of the counters described in the text, five hand-drawn maps, various subsequent Bigfoot books, and almost 20 photos and illustrations from other sources. It was first reprinted in 1996 by Chris Murphy, and then again reissued by Murphy in 2005 under the title The Bigfoot Film Controversy, with 81 pages of additional material by Murphy. In May... June 1967, Patterson began filming docudrama or pseudo documentary about cowboys being led by an old miner and a wise Indian tracker on a hunt for Bigfoot. A storyline called for Patterson, his Indian guide, Gimlin, in a wig, and the cowboys to crawl in a prospects of the stories of Fred Beck of the 1924 Ed Canyon incident. Others, as they tracked the beasts on horseback. For actors and cameramen, Patterson used at least nine volunteer acquaintances including Gimlin and Bob Hermanus for three days of shooting the press over the Memorial Day weekend. Patterson would have needed a caution to represent Bigfoot time came to shoot such climatic scenes. Prior to October 1977 filming, Patterson apparently visited Los Angeles on these occasions. Roger drove to Highwood in 1964 and visited Rock Billy Sunrider in cars Jerry Lee Merritt. Yeah. A Yikima native who was living there in Hollywood then. He was trying to sell his hoop toy invention. In 1966, he visited Merritt again while he was still trying to sell his hoop toy invention. Merritt soon moved back to Yakima and became Parsons' neighbor and later his collaborator on his Bigfoot documentary. Later in 1966, he and Merritt drove down there for sale purposes. Parsons visited cowboy film star Roy Rogers for help. He tried to sell his ponies and wagons to Dunnyland on Knott's Benny or Knott's Berry Farm. In the summer of 1967, apparently 
After getting $700 from the rappers and shooting some of his documentary, they tried unsuccessfully to attract investors to help further funds his Bigfoot movie. They operate a trademark term, Bigfoot. Both Patterson and Gremlin have been radio rivals, amateur boxers, and local champions in the weight classes. Patterson had played high school football. In October 1967, Patterson and his friend Gunnelin set up to, for the Six Rivers National Forest in far northern California. They drove into Gunnelin's truck carrying his provisions and three horses, positioned sideways. Patterson chose the area because of intimate reports of the creatures in the past and of the enormous footprints since 1958. His familiarity with the area and its from private has also been a factor. Okay. The most recent of these reports was the nearby Blue Creek Mountain Trek Fund, which was investigated by journalist John Green, Bigfoot hunter Renee Dahanen, and archaeologist Don Habit. On and after August 28, 1967, this find was reported to Paris and Vienna's wives soon there by Hal Hodginson, owner of the Will Creek Variety Store, a five and dime at the time. Though Grimlin says he just Instance of Sasquatch like creature he agreed to Parsons insistence that he should not attempt to shoot one. Okay, so he's kind of, okay, so it's like so making documentaries up there, make a documentary of Bigfoot. I think or something very interesting in Bigfoot, okay. That's okay. As the stories went, in early afternoon of Friday, October 20th, 1967, Patterson and Gimlin were riding generally northeast upstream on horseback along the east bank of Bluff Creek at sometime between 1.15 and 1.40 p.m. They came to an overturned tree with a large root system at a turn in the creek almost as high as a room. When he landed, there was a log jam, a crow's nest left over on the floor of 64, and they spotted the figure behind it. Nearly simultaneously, it was either crouching behind a creek, the lift, or standing there on the opposite bank. Glenn later described himself as a mild state of shock, as in a mild state of shock at the first seeing the figure. Passion initially estimated its height as 6 feet 6 inches to 7 feet, and later raises as it was around 7 feet 7 inches. Some later analysis anthropologist Grover Grant's Mondum says that Patterson later estimate was about one foot too tall. The film was estimated was six foot. The film with Patterson and Kevin McLean with a large, hairy, bipedal, ape like figure was short, silvery brown, or dark reddish brown, or black hair covering most of its body, including its prominent breasts. Figure the film generally restitution of Bigfoot. Offered by others who could claim to have seen one. Preston estimated he was about 20 feet, 25 feet away from the creature at its closest. Preston said that his horse reared upon sensing the figure as he spent about 20 seconds extricating himself from the saddle, trolling his horse, getting around to its other side, and getting his camera from a saddlebag where he could run towards the figure while operating his camera. He yelled to cover me to Gremlin, meaning to get the gun out. 
Feeling across the creek on horseback after Parison had run well beyond it, riding on a path somewhat to the left of Parison, and saw it beyond his position, Perez estimates he came within 60, 90 feet of Paddy. Then rifle in hand, he dismounted would not point his rifle at the creature. The creature had walked away from them this is about 120 feet before Parison began to run after it. The resulting film about 59.5 seconds long at 16 frames per second is initially quite shaky The Parison got about 80 feet from the figure. At that point, the figure glanced over its right shoulder at the man and Parison fell to his knees on Grant's map. On Grant's map, this corresponds to frame 264. To research John Green, Parison would later criticize creatures Expression of one of the temp in this case, you know, as when umpire tells you one more word and you're out of the game, that's the way it felt. Shortly after this point, the steady middle portion of the film begins attaining the famous look back from look back frame 352. Parson said it turned total, of, I think, three times. The other times, therefore, being before the filming began or while he was running with his finger off the trigger. Shortly after glancing over its shoulder on film, the creature dis- disappeared behind a grove of trees for 14 seconds and reappeared in the film's final 15 seconds after Parison moved 10 feet to a better vantage point, fading into the trees again and being lost to view at a distance of 265 feet as the reel of film ran out. Goodman counted and follows in on horseback, keeping his distance until it disappeared around a bend in the road 300 yards away. <sighs> Patterson called him back at this point, feeling vulnerable on foot without a rifle, because he feared that creatures may might approach. The entire encounter had lasted less than two minutes. Next, Grimlin and Patterson rounded up Patterson's horses and tried to run off in the opposite direction, downstream, before the film began. Patterson got his second roll of film from a saddlebag and filmed the tracks. And the man tracked Patty for either one mile or three miles, but lost in the heavy undergrowth. They went to the campsite three miles south, picked up plaster, turned to the initial site, measured the creature's depth length, and made two plaster casts, one of these of the best quality right and left prints. Okay. It's a lot more corners. According to Parison and Grimlin, they were the only witnesses to the brief encounter with what they claimed was a Sasquatch. Their statements agree in general, but author Greg Londos, a number of inconsistencies, offered somewhat different sequences in describing how they and the horses reacted upon seeing the creature. Parison, in particular, increased his estimates of the creature's size and subsequent retellings of the encounter. And a different context, Lond argues. These discrepancies will probably be considered minor, but given the extraordinary claims made by Patterson and Gentleman, any apparent disagreements in perception or memory are worth noting. The film's defenders have responded by saying that commercially motivated hoaxers have gotten the stories straight beforehand, so they wouldn't have disagreed mainly upon being interviewed and on so many points, and so they would have been created as suit the creatures for similarly unjustifiable features and behaviors. A more serious objection concerns the film's timeline. 
This is important because counterchrome to movie film, as far as it's known, could only be developed by a lab obtaining a $60,000 plus machine. A few West Coast labs known to possess one did not do developing over weekends. Patterson's brother-in-law, Al Yansley, claims not to remember where he took the film for development or where he, he picked it up. Critics claim that too much happened during the filming at 1.15 at the earliest, the Flippers arrival at Willow Creek at 6.30 at the latest. The angling wrote, All the problems with the film line features the film is shot a few days or hours beforehand. If that is the case, one has to wonder what other details other stories are wrong. The film defenders retort that all the time, though it was tight, it was doable. <laughs> Chris Murphy wrote, I am confirmed with Bob Grimlin. The Patterson definitely rode a small quarter horse, which he owned, not his Welsh pony, Peanuts. Although the Patterson has had a range to borrow a horse by name of Chico from Bob Hermes for Grimlin to use, they did not, did not have a horse that was suitable old enough for the expedition. Inless stated that Chico, a middle-aged Grimlin, wouldn't jump or book. Oh, man. At approximately 6.30 p.m., Patterson and Grimlin met up with Al Hodginson at his variety store in Willow Creek, approximately 54.3 miles south by road, about 28 miles by Bluff Creek Road from their camp to 1967 Roadhead by Bluff Creek at 25.5 miles down California State Route 96 to Willow Creek. Patterson intended to drive on to Eureka to ship his film, either at the time or when he arrived at the Yucca Arcata area, he called out Dantley, his father-in-law in Yakima, and told him to inspect the film he was shipping. They requested Hodgson to call Donald Habit, whom Grover Grant described as the only conscious of any chapter to demonstrate any serious interest in the big subject, hoping he would help them search for a creature by bringing a tracking dog. Hodgson called by Hobart declined. Grant argued that it called the name of oh, I lost my voice. <coughs> called by the name of St. Anthony's as a hoax, at least on Patterson's part. After shipping the film, they headed back towards the, their camp where they had left their horses. On their way, they stopped at the Lower Trinity Ranger Station as planned. Around, around 9 o'clock p.m. Here they met with Cy, Sil McCoy and Al Hodgson. At this point, Patterson called the Daily Times Standard newspaper, Eureka, and related his story. They're right back at the campsite around midnight, at about midnight, at either 5 or 5.30 the next morning. After it stayed to rain heavily, uh, Gremlin, put my phone in, uh, Graham, Gunlin returned to the film site from the camp. One second. Okay. And covered the other prints bar to protect them. The cardboard boxes he had been given by Alex for this purpose had left outside were so sorry they were useless, so he left them.
When he returned to camp, he and Patterson aborted the plane to remain looking for more evidence for more evidence and departed for home, fearing the rain would wash out their exit. After attempting to go out along the low road, Bluff Creek Road, and finding it blocked by a mudslide, they went and set up on the steep Onion Mountain Road. Off those shoulder off of his shoulders the truck slipped, attracting it required the authorized barring of a nearby front end loader. Drive home Drive home from the cramp site covered about 580 miles, initial 28-point miles on low-speed logging road, and then about 110 miles on twisty Route 96 during driving a truck with three horses and allowing for occasional stops. It would take 13 hours to get home Saturday evening, and the average speed of 45 miles per hour it would take 14.5 hours at 40 miles per hour average speed. U.S. Forest Service Timber Management Assistant Lyle Laverty said, I and his team of three and chief passed the site on either Thursday the 19th or Friday 20th. No, no tracks. After reading the news of Paris' encounters on the weekend, Greg Laverty and his team returned to the site on Monday, 23rd, and made six photos of the tracks. Laverty later served as Assistant Secretary of the Interior under George W. Bush Taxamers. And outdoorsman Robert Titmus went to the site with his sister and brother-in-law nine days later. The Titmus made a plaster cast of ten successive prints of the creature and then the vets he could plot a comparison in the creature's movement on the map. <clears throat> Grover Grants writes that Parison and the film developed as soon as possible. At first, he thought he had proof of Bigfoot's existence and really experienced scientists to accept it. But only a few scientists were willing to even look at the film, usually at shown, showings at scientific organizations. These were usually arranged at the behest of zoologist, author, and media figure Ivan Sanderson, a supporter of Harrison's film. Seven showings occurred in Vancouver, Manhattan, Bronx, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and Washington, D.C. again, all by the end of the next Then later in Burlington, Oregon, of those who recorded most expressed various reservations, although some were willing to say they were intrigued by it. Christopher Murphy wrote, Dahin traveled to Europe with the film in 1971. He visited England, Finland, Sweden, Switzerland, and Russia. Although scientists in these countries were somewhat more open-minded than those in America, their findings were basically the same. A real glimmer of hope, however, emerged in Russia, where he met Bainov Bostov and their associates. Though there were, was little scientific interest in the film, Patterson was still able to capitalize on it. He made a deal with the BBC, along with the use of his footage in a docudrama made in return for letting him tour with their docudrama, to which he melded material from his own documentary and additional material that he and Altie filmed. The film was shown in local movie houses around the Pacific Northwest and Midwest. A technique commonly used for nature films called for Walling was employed, following heavy local advertising, mostly on TV, of a few days of showings. It was a modest financial success. Identity estimated that its 50% of the film's profits amounted to 75000 The film generated a fair amount of national publicity. Patterson appeared on a few popular TV talk shows, brought the film, and belief in Bigfoot by showing it from it, for instance. 
on the Joan Pine Show in Los Angeles in 1967, which covered most of the western U.S. on Mef- Merv Griffin's program with Grant's reference analysis of the film on Joey's Bishop's talk show, also on Johnny Carson's night show. All across the film appeared in Arthur Crossy National Wildlife Magazine and Reader's Digest. One radio interview with Cameron by Vancouver-based Jack Wester in November 1967 was particularly recorded by John Green and reprinted in Lauren Coleman's Bigfoot. Barrison also appeared on broadcast interviews on local stations near where his film would be shown during its four-walling tour in 1968. Patterson successfully sold overlapping distribution rights for the film to several parties, which resulted in costly legal entanglements. After Patterson's death, Michael McLeod wrote, With the constant ascent of elderly and Patricia Patterson, the film contributor Ron Olsen took over the operation of Northwest Research and changed its name to the North American Wildlife Research Association. <clears throat> he worked full-time client reports saying volunteers joined the hunt and organizing several small expeditions. A Bigfoot trap Olsen and his crew built still survives. Olsen continued to lobby the company American National Enterprises to Bigfoot's Bigfoot, Bigfoot film in 1974. And he finally agreed at least in 1975 to Bigfoot Man or Beast. He devised a storyline involving members of the Bigfoot Research Party until it comes to a frightful end when a Bigfoot terrorized the exhibition at night. Also spent several years exhibiting the film around the country. They planned to make a millions with the film, but says it lost money. Austin is profiled in the Barb Austin Sasquatch operations. On November 25th, 1974, CBS broadcast Monsters, Mysteries, or Myth, a documentary about the localist monster and Bigfoot. It was co-produced by the Smithsonian Institution, who canceled their contact with the racer next year. The show attracted 50 million viewers. In 1975, Sun Class Pictures released Bigfoot, the Mysterious Monster, a.k.a. the Mysterious Monster, Monsters, which remains parts of Monsters, Monsters, or Myth, Another documentary called Land of the Yeti, and also included footage from the Paris and Gremlin film. Okay. Okay. Paris and expensive $369 16mm camera had been rented on May 13th, but he had kept it longer than the contract had stipulated. And an arrest warrant had been issued for him on October 17th. He was actually arrested within weeks of his return from Bull Creek. After Patterson returned the camera in working order, this change was ultimately dismissed in 1969. While Patterson sought publicity, Gremlin was conspicuous about his absence. He only briefly helped to front the film and avoided discussing his Bigfoot encounters publicly for any significant years, he turned down quests for interviews. He later reported that he had been avoided from the seat at Paris and the promoter Altenty had broken their agreements to pay him on a one-third share of any profits generated by the film. Another factor was that his wife objected to publicity. Dangling wrote, Bigfoot advocates emphasized that Paris remained an active Bigfoot hunter up until his death. 
For instance, in 1969, he hired a pair of brothers to travel around in a truck chasing down ladies through Bigfoot witnesses and interviewing them. Later, in December of the year, he was one of those present in Bossburg, Washington, and aftermath of the crippled foot tracks found there. Grant's reports that a few years after the film was made, Patterson received a letter from a man, a U.S. airman stationed in Thailand, who assured that him a sacrifice was being held in the Buddhist monastery. Patterson spent most of his remaining money preparing a fish to treat this creature, only to learn it was a hoax. He learned it's only after sent Dennis Jensen fruitlessly to Thailand, where he concluded that the airman was mentally unbalanced, and then received a second untrue letter from the man going south Thailand with Dennison. To obtain money to travel to Thailand, Patterson called Ron, who had turned to Annie and sold the company to Terrico Rice to clip for what also described as a pretty good sum of money. Patterson died of Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1972, according to Michael McLeod, great one and Bill Munns. A few days later, before Roger died, he told Bigfoot book author Peter Byrne that, in retrospect, he wished he would have shot the thing brought a body instead of a, of a real film. According to Grover Grants and Robert Powell, years later, Patterson and Grimlin both agreed that they should have tried to shoot to make sure both Russia gained into science naysayers. In 1995, almost three decades after the Patterson Grimlin film, Greg Lawn, a technical writer for the technology firm, had a hobby of escalating the writing about Northwest mysteries, started years of interviewing people who knew Patterson, some of whom described him as a liar and a con man. Uh, Marvin Swainoson for Jerry Lee Merritt, Pat Anderson, Glenn Colin, and Paul Swanson suffered financially from their dealings with him, as well as the 21 small local creditors who sued Patterson via a collection agency. Villain Redford claimed Patterson never paid a loan made to him for a Bigfoot movie Roger was planning. Redford had Cut Corbett Evans a seven dollar promissory note for expenses in connection with filming a Bigfoot records a bottle of snowman. Patterson agreed to pay her $150 plus 5% of any profits from the movie. In 1974, Bob Gimlin, Renee Collins' financial assistance, sued Dean and Patterson when the producers claiming he had not received his one third share of the film's proceeds. He's won his case in 1976. Oh, God. <clears throat> oh, okay. Greg Lawn reports that a 1978 legal settlement gave Dahin and trolling rights, 51% of the film footage, 51% of all video cassette rights, and 100% of all 952 frames of the footage. Patty Patterson had 100% of all TV rights and 49% rights in the film footage. Dahin had brought out, had bought out Gimlin himself, had received nothing from Patterson, and Mason and Rafford promised part of the promise by Patterson, and nothing to show for their investments or efforts. For a 3 through 2, the 350, frame 352 
well-known look-back image is in the public domain, having long been reprinted by others without protest by the corporate order. The whereabouts of the original is unknown, although there is are several speculations as to what happened to it. Patterson had ceded ownership of the original to the American National Enterprises, which went bankrupt a few years after his death in 1972. Thereafter, Greg Lawn writes, Peregrine Entertainment bought the company, and Peregrine was bought by Century Group of Los Angeles. When Century Group went bankrupt in 1996, Byrne rushed to Deerford Beach, Florida, where an accountant was auctioning off the company's assets to pay creditors. The company's films were in storage in Los Angeles, but a search failed to turn up the Patterson footage. In 2008, Chris Murphy thought a Florida lawyer might have had the film. Not lasting until later, the filmmaker had contacted the Los Angeles storage company that held it and that had fun that the film was not in the location the lawyer's records indicated. <coughs> Belmond writes that it was the last seen by Richarders Rene DeHinden and Bruce Booney in 1980. And then they Film fall in Southern California, holding it to release it to him. He made cock chrome images of it stunts between the 1910 and 1996. The film went missing from its locations in the vault. At last, at least seven copies were made of the original film. Both month listed four other missing reels derived work that would be helpful to film analysis. The second reel showing Patterson and Gilman making and playing high shots of some footprints were not shown in conjunction with the first reel at Aldi's house. According to those who were there, Christopher Fever, only the screening of this role at the University of British Columbia October night was the first and last major screening. It has actually been lost. John Green suspects that Al D. Henley has it. Another theory not that the BBC tomorrow Borrowed it to make a time and failed to return it. If so, it's like a loss for good. After the BBC engaged in a massive house cleaning of its video archives decades ago. A 10 foot strip from that reel, or a copy of that reel, which still is were taken by Chris Murphy, still exists, but it's too has gone missing. Okay. Uh, one factor that complicates the discussion of the Patterson film is that the Patterson said he normally filmed 24 frames per second, but in his haste to capture the big film, he did not note the camera setting. His Sin Kodak K100 camera had markings on the ceiling variables all at 16, 24, 32, 48, and 64 frames per second, but no click stops. I was capable of filming at any frame speed within this range. Crover grants wrote Patterson clearly told Green that he found that the camera was set on 18 frames per second. The defendant suggested that Patterson simply misread 16 as 18. Dr. D.W. Green as an autonomous with experience in human biomechanics evaluated the various possibilities regarding film speed and that got into a collision between them. He confessed to being perplexed and unsettled by the tangible possibility that the film subject was real. John Napier, a primatologist, claimed that the movie was filmed at 24 frames and the creature's walk cannot be distinguished from a normal human walk. It was filmed at 16 frames, but there are a number of different re re 
respects in which it's quite unlike Manscaped. Now, Pierre, who published Ford Nicking's rants, pretended it was likely that Patterson would have used 24 frames because it is related to TV transmission, while seeing that this is entirely speculative. Krantz argued, on the basis of analysis by Igor Bostov, that since Patterson height is 5'2 or 5'3, a reasonable calculation can be made of his pace. This furnace pace can also be synchronized with the earlier bounces and initial jumpy portions of the film are caused by each fast step Patterson took to approach the creature. On the basis of this analysis, Grants argued that a speed of 24 frames per second can be quickly dismissed and that we may simply roll out 16 frames per second and set the speed of 18. Rene Nat Hinden said the footage of the horses prior to the Bigfoot film looks jerky and natural when predicted at 24 frames. And he didn't experiment at the film site by taking I many people walk carefully over the creature's path and reported none of us could walk that distance in 40 seconds. 952 frames at 24 frames a second. So I'll limit 24 frames. Bill Munn wrote one creature. Bill Munn's found technical data from a Kodak station that they the K aren't care with easily runs it to 18 frames per second. I have 9K cameras now. I tried it on one camera. I got 18 frames per second, but the rest still need testing. Not all with film running through camera. Analysis. Uh, the Patterson Grimman film has seen relatively little interest from mainstream scientists. Scientists, statements of scientists who viewed the film and screen or who conducted a study are reported in Chris Murphy's Bigfoot film journal. Typical objections include neither humans nor activities have hairy breasts, as does the figure in this film, and they appear also in the tibial crest is only very occasionally seen to the intimate extent chimpanzee females. Critics have argued these features are against against Intensity grants clear later points saying a sexual crest sounds like of absolute size alone. As anthropologist David Dangling writes, the scientists have not felt compelled to offer much of a detailed argument against the film that murder proof rarely enough should lie with the advocates. Yet, without a detailed argument against the intensity, Dangling notes that the film has not gone away. Similarly, grants are grace that many opinions offer from about the Patterson film. Only a few of those opinions are based on the technical expertise and careful study of the film itself. <clears throat> Regarding the quality of the film, second generation copies or copies from TV and TV DVD productions are inferior to first generation copies. Many earlier frames are blurry due to camera shake and quality of subsequent frames for various for the same reason. Sterilization of the film is used by M.K. Davis to counter camera shake as previewers really to analyze regarding graininess. Williams writes, based on chance experiences taken off the camera, original PDF original is as, as fine grain as any color system film can achieve. He has the graininess increases the images are magnified.
Okay. I'm gonna get fucking right pan my fucking dying over here. Keep going. Keep going. Dimitri Banoff, Igor Rostev, and Renee Dan and Alfred Ellis' the Patterson Grimman film. While we find it infinite. It is a study with fictions examining the Nicole characters of the footage, the film speed, the morphology of the creature, the specimen's movements, and end up with assessment vision favorable to the film subject's reality. Most notable senses are these cultural Nikita Levinsky argues that the better a costume from the technical point of view, the worse it would be from the viewpoint of biomechanics. A clever costume on a moving altar would expose not concern and still a fraud. Later, Bunov felt the North American monster thesis did not pursue the VF issues with enough vigor and more funding from the ISC. Uh, a former analytic study of the Patterson films conducted by Dmitry Dungafi. Chief of the Department of Case at the USSR, Central Institute of Physical Culture, and later associated with Moscow's Government Museum. John Scott concluded that the creature was non human on the basis of its weight, especially its gait. With John Scott, judge would be difficult, if not possible for a human to replicate. He inferred the film's subject was witty from the prominence momentum. He served in the movement of its arms and legs, and the staggering of the knees as weight came onto it and the flatness of the foot. Its gait, he said, not artificial because it was confident and unwavering, neatly expressive and well coordinated, and yet non human because its arm motion and glide resembled across country skiers. Grant's constant conclusions as being that Phil depicts a very massive animal that is definitely not a human being. Jeff Meldrum wrote, Animator and computer generate effects expert Ruben Steindorf of Vision Realm created a computer model of Patty as the film subject has been nicknamed. Steindorf instructed Patty's skeletal anatomy from the ground up using the first kingdom max. One other findings confirmed that the upper extremity was rather long compared to the lower. But this ratio can be expressed as an integral index. And then the intermemorable index for the film said it was roughly 88. And the average human I am is 71. Gordon Strasberg authored the Crescent about this in the Patterson Grimman film. After introducing reviews, four other studies and opinions by scientists on the film, and it goes on with the following sections testing hypotheses. And pharmacological attitudes, alternatives to A or Botus, the basic problem and inclusion. Last session begins. Parison and film as actual results to date are the best data. Glickman is a certified forensic examiner who performed intensive computer analysis on the Parison and film over a period of three years. His 43 page study, written in scientific format, contains 13 pages about the film. He gave estimate measurements of the creature, including a very High weight estimate that few have accepted. He's unable to find evidence of fakery, but notes several indications of authenticity. 
<coughs> as criticisms are summed up on one page in two Christopher Murphy's book, background information collections project sponsored by his North American Science Institute, can be found in any in another of Murphy's books. <coughs> Anthropologist Grover Grant was originally skeptical of the Paris film based on still photos in the Outgrossing magazine when he was in 1969 <coughs> after seeing the film because the realism of the creature's locomotion impressed him. He later offered an advanced examination of the Paris film. He included that the film depicts a genuine unknown creature. Primarily, Grant's argument is based on detailed analysis of the figure's stride center of gravity, and biomechanics. Grant argues that the creature's legs and foot motions are quite different from humans and could not have been typicated by a person wearing a gorilla suit. Grant showed the knee is regularly bent more than 90 degrees, while the human leg bends less than 70 degrees. Daniel Perez brought out a healthy confession of this, writing, The subject's toes slips off the sole of its changes in every walking cycle. Renee film studied how modern Man walks, finding a maximum of two to three inches of distance between the toes and the surface it is walking over. No human has replicated this 10 inch long lower leg lift while obtaining its smoothest posture and stride length of the creature. Grant's pointed out tremendous width of the creature's shoulders, which, after tilting for here, he, he um, estimated uh, 28.2 inches or 25.17 full standing height of 78 inches or higher percentage of its 72 inch walking height, which is a bit stooped perhaps in the sun to sand. The creature's shoulders are almost facing wider than a human mean for a comparison under a giant antipole ratio of 24%. Shoulder Bob Gromus symbol has 27.4%. Only very rarely do humans have a shoulder breadth of 30%. Grants argue that a certain person cannot mimic the breast and still have a naturally hand and arm motion dependent on the film. Grants and others have noticed a noted natural looking muscular visible as creature moods, arguing that it would be very high difficult or possible to fake. Hunter and Dan. And also note that the bottom of the figure's head seems to be very become part of the heavy back and shoulder muscle, and the muscles of the legs are more distinct. Okay. Jeffrey Menem of Idaho State University cites efforts by John Green as important in his own studies of the Paris film. Within August, even the casual viewer that the film subject possesses arms that are disappointingly long for its stature. Ogden writes that anthropologists typically express limp portions of innumerable index and notes that the humans have an average IM index of 72, girls an average IM index of 117, and Tiffany's average IM index of 106. The permanent IM Index for the figure in the Fairs film. Eldrum included the figure and I am days somewhere between 80 and 90. Intermediate between humans and African apes. <coughs> in spite of the imprecision of the preliminary estimate, it was well beyond the means for humans and effectively resulted a man in a suit and for the Patterson film. 
Well, I'm broken. I'm whatever. It's not conceivable for setting contraventions to count for the appropriate first positions and achieves actions of wrist, elbows, and finger flexion visible on the film. This point serves further examination and may well rule out the probability of hoaxing. In his book, Mugram says Reuben Stafford tracked the joint examiners through 116 fragments of the film, yielding a reliable estimate of the film's subject than proportions. Calculating these proportions, exceptions, breadth, dimensional argues, falling against the simplistic hypothesis of an average man, even when wearing shoulder pads or artificial armor sessions. However, scientists explain Sacramento seeing below the subject as a non human IMI. Dr. Scott Lynn, associate professor of Kinesiology at California State University, was now to research a favorable conclusion. Okay. Thomas D.W. Grieve of the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine studied a copy of the film in 1972 and wrote a detailed analysis. He notes, the possibility of a very clever fake cannot be ruled out on evidence of the film. Also, writes that his analysis hinges largely on the question of filming speed. Grieves concluded that the possibility of a fakery is ruled out if the speed of the film was 16 or 18 frames per second. In these conditions, a normal being cannot duplicate the observed pattern, which would suggest that Zasworth must possess a very different locomotor system than that of man. The film has pretty grieved through the creature watch with a gate pattern very similar in most respects to a man walking at high speed. Grieve stated, I can see the muscle masses at appropriate places. This fake is an extremely clever one. Like Grant's, Grieve thought the figure's shoulders were quite broad. Also, like Grant's, Grieve thought Paris's estimate of the figure's height was inaccurate. Grieve included the figure in the Patterson film of estimate that height was subject for the subject of not more than 6'5. He notes that a tall human is consistent with the figure's height. Also, notes that for a tall human, the shoulder's breadth, however, would be difficult to achieve without getting a natural appearance of the arm, swing, and shoulder contours. Grease notes that his subjective impressions have oscillated between total assumptions of the Hotchwatch based on the grounds the film would be difficult to fake to one of irrational rejection based on emotional response to the possibility that watch actually exists. This seems worth stating because others have reacted similarly to the film. Grants claims that Reed made errors in his memories and reference points. Canadian Bigfoot researcher John Green also criticized Grease members and its reasoning. Okay. Thomas and computer technology permitted enhancements of the passion fail, passion grammar fail to be my Bigfoot enthusiasts. Okay, they was created by a version that was against the camera, permitting the creature to be seen from a more stable perspective. Davis have produced a second televised version, incorporating arguments of specific elements that he believes are significant. On YouTube, posting he claims that odds that the film is fake is to be about zero. Huh. 
Okay. We got here. Let's film that. I'm gonna take a break. It's my mouth. My voice. I'm losing my voice. All right. Welcome back. Let's get on with with the passion film. Scientific studies are favorable to the film. Bernard Wavelessman's a zoologist and the so-called father of cryptozoology thought the creature in the Paris film was a suited human. He objected to the film so the hair flow pattern as being too uniform to the hair on the breast as not being like <clears throat> not being like a primate to its buttocks as being insufficiently separated and is too calm a treat from the pursuing man. Primate primate expert John Napier, one time director of the Smithsonian's primate biology program, was one of the few mainstream scientists not only to critique the Paris and Grimman film, but also to study the available Bigfoot evidence in a generally sympathetic manner in his 1973 book, Bigfoot, The Sasquatch and Yeti, in Myth and Reality. Napier conceded that likelihood of Bigfoot as a real creature is stating, I convinced that Sasquatch exists, but he argued against the film being genuine. There is little doubt that scientific evidence taken collectively points to a hoax of some kind. The creature shown in the film does not stand up well to functional analysis. Napier gives several reasons for his alert skepticism that are commonly raised, but apparently his main reasons are original with him. First, the length of the footprints are totally at variance with its calculated height. Second, the footprints are of the hourglass type, which he is suspicious of. He adds, I cannot see the zipper, and I still can't. Then I think we must leave that matter. Perhaps it's a man dressed up in a monkey skin. If so, it's a brilliant executed hoax, and, un and the unknown perpetrator will take his place with the great hoaxers of the world. Perhaps it was the first film of a new type of hominin, quite unknown to a science, in which case Roger Patterson deserves the rank, the rank with Dubois, discoverer of, for like, for Canthropus erectus or Raymond J. Raymond Dart of Hansburg, the man who interests the world to his immediate human ancestor, Australopithecus africanus. Skeptical views of Grieve and Appear are summarized favorably by Kenneth Wiley in Appendix A in his 1980 book, Bigfoot A Personal Inquiry to a Thumbnail. Esteban Sarmito is a specialist in physical anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History. He has 25 years of experience with great apes in the wild. He writes, I do not find inconsistencies in appearance and behavior that might exist a fake, but nothing that clearly shows that this is the case. His most original criticism is this. The planetary surface of the feet is densely pale. The palms of the hands seem to be dark. There is no mammal I know of which the planetary soul differs so directly in color from the palm, but see one. its most commercial statements are these. Gluteals, although large, fail to show human-like cleft or crack. Body proportions and all the human Bigfoot is well within the human range and differs markedly from any living ape ever atropocene fossils. And I estimate Bigfoot's weight to be between 190 and 240 pounds.
when anthropologist David J. Dangling of the University of Florida and Daniel O. Schmidt examined the film, they concluded it was possible to clearly determine if the subject in the film is non-human. Additionally, they argued that the flaws in the studies by Grants and others invalidated their claims. Dangling submitted the problems of uncertainties in the subject and camera positions. Camera movement, poor image quality, and our effects of the subject. They concluded, based on our analysis of gait and problems inherent in estimate and subject dimensions, it's our opinion that this is not possible to evaluate the value of the film subject with any confidence. Dangling has asserted that the creature's odd walk could be replicated, supposed curves of subject speed, stride length, and posture are all reproduced by a human being by a human being following this type of locomotion. A complicated view. Okay. Then notes that in 1967, movie and television special effects were primitive compared to most suffocated effects in later decades. Uh, that if the first film depicts a man in a suit, then it is not unreasonable to suggest that it's better than some of the tackiest, tackier monster outfits that got thrown together for television at the time. <laughs> Jessica Rose and James Gamble are authors of the Hex on Human Gate, Human Walking. They operate the Motion and Gate Analysis Lab at Stanford University. They conducted a high-tech human implication attempt at Patty's, at Patty's Gate in cooperation with Jeff Meldrum. Rose was certain their subject had matched Patty's Gate, while Gamble was not quite as sure. Meldrum was impressed and acknowledged that some aspects of the preacher's walk had been implicated, but not all. They said even experts can see the gate test cannot replicate all parameters of the gate. It was shown in an episode of Discovery Channel's Beast Evans series. A computerized visual analysis of the video conducted by Cliff Crook, who once devoted rooms to Sasquatch Mumbrella in his home in Bothwell, Washington, and Chris Murphy, Canadian Bigfoot buff from Vancouver, British Columbia, was released in January 1989 and exposed an object that appeared to be the suit's fastener. Simulated on four magnified frames of 16-millimeter footage, video exposed what apparent to be tracings of belt-shaped fastener on a creature's waist area, presumably used to hold a person's suit together. Since both Crick and Murphy were prevailed staunch supporters of the bill's legal authenticity, Associated Press Journalist John W. Hamlin noted, "On times he used smell observer. Of their analysis. Grants also showed the film to Gordon Bellion, a researcher for for to Gordon Bellion, a researcher for Nike Shoes, who he says made some rather useful observations about some rather unhuman movements you could see. A first season episode of Monster Quest focuses on the Bigfoot phenomenon. One pair of scientists, Jude Grozek and Esteban Cimento, attempts and fails to get a mime outfitted with LEDs. On showing some movement to pass in the Bigfoot gate. A second pair, Darius Fundler and Owen Gate Caddy, employ a digital enhancement and observe facial movements such as moving eyelids, lips that compress like a compressed like an upset chimps and a mouth as lower than it appears. Due to a false slip anomaly like that of chimps, unfortunately the show's narrator falsely claims that three times the original film took up passing was used. This also includes New variants are treating but inclusive until a body is found. <sighs> Dale Cheats and the Universal Studio 
Patterson's Evidently screened the film for Dale Sheets and the documentary film department and unnamed technicians in the special effects department at Universal Studios in Hollywood. The conclusion was we found we could not, we could try, but well, we would have to create a completely new system of artificial muscles and find actors who could be trained to walk like that. It might be done, but we would have to say it would be almost impossible. A more moderate version of this opinion was. If it is a man in an ape suit, it's a very good one. A job that would take a lot of time and money to produce. Disney executive producer Ken Peterson grants reports that in 1969, John Green, who owned a first-edition copy of the original Patterson film, interviewed Disney executive Ken Peterson, who, after viewing the Patterson film, asserted that their editions would not be able to debate the film. Grant argues that if Disney personnel were unable to debate the film, there's little I could that Patterson could have done so. Greg Lawn writes, Byrne cited his trip to Walt Disney Studios in 1972, where Disney's chief of animation, and four assistants viewed Patterson footage and praised it as a beautiful piece of work altogether, although they said it must have been shot in the studio. When Burke told them it had been shot in the woods of Northern California, they shook their heads and walked away. Bill Munns retired was a special Bill Munns retired was a special effects and makeup artist, cameraman, and film editor. He argues that Universal and Disney are not the most knowledgeable to consult with. Since that Fox, MGM, and special effects artist Stuart Freeborn in England have just completed his groundbreaking ape suits for 2001, his fatalities would have been preferable. Munns started posing. It's online analysis of the film in 2009, summarizing it in the online Mund report. In 2013, he and Jeff Mother authored three papers in Mother's online magazine, Relic, Hominid, and Quarry. In 2014, Mother self-published Patty, a 488-page book, covering material from those articles that analyzed the film and felt it from various perspectives. Uh, he argues the film depicts a non-human animal, not a man in a fursuit. He proposes a new diagnostic test of authenticity at the armpit, natural concave skin fold versus artificial vertical crease. Once the analysis had been featured in the City Channel series Monster Quest. Uh, other special effects artists. Rick Baker, famed Hollywood creator of Harry. Or maybe Harry Henderson's Rick Baker told Gerardo Rivera's No, it could be told show in 1922 that looked like cheap fake fur after seeing subject in Patterson's film strip. Baker said that John Cambers had a crappy walk around suit they saw as a gag to play played on the guy that shot it. Film. Later on, Baker suited his day in a fax. He no longer believes that this timber made the suit. It's true. Uh, Ellis Berman, the Gwinnett's Robert and Francis wrote of him. I spoke to Ellis Berman of Berman Studios in Hollywood. Creators of all kinds of strange creatures, including a fake Bigfoot or a traveling pickle and punk carnival exhibit. Berman died this company created the Patterson Bigfoot, but didn't say he could duplicate it for more than $2,000 in total cost. John Chambers, Academy Award winning monster maker John Chambers is most famous for 
innovative, flexible mask in Planet of the Apes. In a nineteen seven interview with Nursing Home, a big footer, Bobby Short, and her. <laughs> he had found out rumors that he could create a costume for the fashion subject, saying, I'm good, but not that good. Sometime before 1976, Glance reported that in answer to the question, it included that if the creature is a man in a suit, there is no ordinary gorilla suit. It is not something they bought or rented in a store. It would have to be something tell, tailor made. We also fight. Like it had been made out of real animal fur. Jails Prosaka. After viewing the Parison film with John Green, costume designer and ape suit mime Janos Prosaka, edited for his work on the late 1960s film program Star Trek and Lost in Space, concluded the film subject looked real to him. When I asked if he thought the film was fake, Prosaka identified, I don't think so. To me, it looks very, very real. If the film was hoax, Prosaka thought it was remarkably realistic and sophisticated and sophisticated, the best costume he had ever seen. The only plausible explanation was that someone would have glued false hair directly to the actor's skin. However, film critic David Dangling speculates that the same effect being had by gluing the hair to Seth's height by expanding the vote waffle design long johns. Chris Wallace Makeup artist Chris Wallace in the Bigfoot forums saying to the presented a theory that arching headlight presents overlap between a fur costume, legging section, and torso section. Stan Winston, Academy Award winning film special effects advisor and makeup artist Stan Winston, reviewing the BGF, said, It's a guy in a bad hair suit. Sorry. He also added, If one of my colleagues created this for a movie, you'd be out of business. They want to comment that the suit in the film could have been made today for a couple of hundred dollars or under a thousand dollars in that day. Mary Keith. An experienced makeup customer accused the Hollywood costume industry of making Rado claims of how easy such an event would be to, to fake. He said that their cheats and shortcuts are not detectable in Patty. Major hopes allegations are summarized in crowds in two Christopher Murphy's book, Orwell Coleman's Bigfoot, which is story of apes in America, and David Dangling's Bigfoot Exposed. Barrison and Pagano both denied that they had perpetrated a hoax, but in the 1999 telephone interview with television producer Chris Patman for the BBC, The Ex Creatures, Gilman said that for some time, I was telling events no one could fool me, and of course, I'm an older man now. I think there could possibly be a hoax, but it would have been really well played by Roger, or Roger Patterson. Uh, another author, Greg Lawn, uncovered circumstantial evidence of varying strength of footprint hoaxing, possibly even sighting and photo hoaxing, and the Yakima listening by Patterson. Lawn argues that this means that he faked the film too. One possible motive for Yakima Bakery would have been to make favorite Bigfoot seemed more real to local millionaire. To local millionaire, he was acquainted with from whom he hoped to obtain funding for an expedition. Floyd Paxton, another motive, might have been to attract local audience to his talks and book signs on the subject. The film's performance position is that what is seen in the film is unfakeable, especially not by a costume beginner like Patterson. 
For instance, most of Bill Munn's books make detailed explanations of film features that he argues could have been created in the 1967 special effects technology. He found recreation attempts, attempts of his own have failed. Daniel Perez wrote, If the film is in fact a fake, a costume made or a machine, surely science could duplicate the film with ease. 35, now 50, that's 2016 years later, no one has come close. He later wrote, He has never convincingly replicated. Has never been convincingly replicated. To any thinking person, this should speak volumes. Scramble's response was, "Film they had just isn't going to do it. I'm sorry, that's not evidence." David Dangling also proposes writes that more cynical skeptics see Paris's luck more than other species. He sets out to make a Bigfoot documentary and almost literally stumbles across a Bigfoot. Dangling, however, offers the benefit of that, knowing that Paris reasoning is sound and seeking something elusive into where it had been reported. Buff Creek ha- has also been the site of well-known Bigfoot hoaxer Ray Wallace activities in 1958. In Patterson's book, he mentions meeting with Wallace once. Later, Dangling cites certain features in the film and storyline as suspicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Grant thought Patterson might have created such a host given the opportunity and resources. Uh, Roger was an accomplished to the artist whose drawings and paintings of hoaxes and other wildlife showed a detailed understanding of musculature and anatomy. But I also argued that Patterson had nowhere near the knowledge of facilities to do so, nor the matter did anyone else. <clears throat> when I talked about some of the more technical details of biomechanics, he, Patterson, showed the familiar blank look of a student who had lost the drift of the estimation was still trying hard to pay attention, yet he must have known all these details to create a hoax. For instance, he could see the anterior vision of the front of the shin, but how a relative to foot village was quite fine. Him. Peter Byer, who interviewed Patterson, again, many times wrote, both men lacked primarily the internal capacity essential to fruition of a hoax, hoax non-dermed a masterpiece. Similarly, Dingling writes that most ways a Patterson volunteer that neither he nor Gillen were clever enough to put something that they deal together. <coughs> In 2002, Philip Morris, owner of Morris Costumes, a North Carolina-based company offering costumes, props, and stage products, claimed that he made gorilla costumes that were used. He made a gorilla costume that were used in a Patterson film. Morris says he cast his role. At costume conventions, lectures, and musician conventions. And that's the 80s, but first, the rest of the public at large on August 16th, 2002, Charlotte, North Carolina radio show WBT. The story was printed in the Charlotte Observer. Morris claims he was selected to propose jokes earlier for fear of harming his business, giving away a performance secret. He would he said it would be widely regarded as district's legal. Morris said that he sold a suit to Paris in via mail order in 1967. I think it was going to be used in what Paris described as a prank. Ordinarily, the grill suit said he sold were used for popular sideshow routine that's pretty attractive 
woman, supposed from some far-flung corner of the globe, been altered by sorcerer or scientist into a gorilla or otherwise ape-like creature. As an initial sale, Morris said the person telephoned him asking them to make soldiers more massive and the arms longer. Morris says he says that whoever wore the suit should wear shoulder, full shoulder pads and hold sticks in his hands within the suit. As for the creature's walk, Morris said, The Bigfoot researchers say that no human can walk that way in the film. Oh, yes, they can. When you're wearing long clowns, feet, you can't place a ball your foot down first. You have to put your foot down flat, otherwise you stumble. Another thing, when you put on the real head, you can only turn your head maybe a quarter of the weight. And to look behind you, you have to turn your head and your shoulders and your hips. But shoulder pads in the suit are in the way of the jaw. That's why the Bigfoot turns and looks like what he does in the film. He has to twist his entire upper body. Morris' wife and business partner, Amy, had vouched for her husband and claims to have helped frame the suit. Morris offered no evidence apart from his own testimony to support his account. The most conspicuous shortcoming being the absence of a grill suit or documentation that would match detailed evidence in the film and could have been produced in 1967. A recreation of the PGF was undertaken on October 6, 2004 at Cow Camp near Rimrock Lake, a location four miles west of Yakima. This was six months after the publication of Lon's book and 11 months after Lon had first contacted Morris. Bigfoot, Bigfooter Daniel Perez wrote, Natural Graphics Noel Doster noted that the suit used in the recreation was in no way similar to what was depicted in the PG film. Morris wanted to consent to this video to National Graphic. The recreation's sponsor claimed he had and had adequate time to prepare and the month was in the middle of his business season. However, he has not time to create a suit more to his liking since that time. Yeah. Uh, Bob Hieronymus claims to have been the bigger debated in the patterns in the film. Hieronymus said he had not previously discussed his role in the hoax because he ought to be paid eventually and was afraid of being convicted of fraud had he confessed. After speaking with Lori, he was told that since he had not been paid for his involvement in the hoax, he could not be held accountable. Almost after watching the December 28, 1998 film, 98 Fox Television special, World's Greatest Hoaxes, Secrets Finally Revealed, he went public via a giant via January 30 press release by his lawyer Barry Woodward in Yakima his favorite story he said I'm telling the truth I'm tired after 37 years 37 years five days later a second his favorite story for this that his lawyer's office had been conducted was called from media outlets we're just sort of waiting for the dust to sell he said explaining he and his client are abandoning offers it's also he also said we anticipate and be telling the full story to somebody rather quickly. <coughs> uh, Hermanus' name was first publicly revealed, and his actions was first publicly detailed five years later. <laughs> five years later, in, in Greg Long's book, The Making of Bigfoot, which includes testimonies that Kerbis Hermanus claims. Her, Hermanus' relatives, his mother, Alpo, and nephew, John Miller, claim to have seen 
Now you see it near his car. Also said he said suit Tuesday says he saw the suit two days uh says he saw the suit two days after the film was shot. Russ Bohana Russ Bohanna, longtime friend, says that Harris Bill the host probably in nineteen sixty eight or nineteen sixty nine. Bernard Hammerster Hammermeister Another on-time friend said he's shown an ape suit in Harmer's car. No date was given by law firms of observation, but it apparently came all after the relative's observation was applied by the word still in the situation Harmer's gave. Harmer's turn for a Christian in silence. There was still supposed to be a parallel on the scene, and he didn't have it. Lawn argues that the suit Morris says he sold to Patterson was the same suit Harmer's claims to have worn Patterson film. However, long quotes, Hermes and Morris describe different suit, ape suits in many respects. Modern noble terms are suit material. Hearst Hyde versus Dino. Hermes says he was told by his brother, Donald Patterson, claims venture suit from Horse Hyde. And Lon asks how heavy the suit was, butterfly. It weighed maybe 20, 25 pounds. Horse Hyde would be heavy. How about it? It stunk. Roger skinned out a red horse. Morris reports that the suit was made of dynamite, a lighter weighted synthetic material with little or no order. Morris said that it's a standard suit that we sold to all our cheap, all our customers that cost $435, cheaper than the competition. Another contrast is that Howard reported that the horse hide was a real dark brown and Lon writes that Morris was using brown nylon in 1967. Morris wouldn't have wanted a real dark brown color as he chose brown to contrast against the black background of the girl to girl illusion. Suit top of trousers versus a black onesie. Morris, uh, so the top Trousers or a basic movie. Hammers described the suit as having no metal pieces and upper torso part that he donned, like putting on a t shirt. Uh, and I both Craig, he put it on the top, asked about the bottom parts, and he guessed it was filled with the drawstring. But Morris made a one piece heating suit with a metal zipper off the back, presumably one step into the first, then with arms in the event, donning like a t shirt. Would be possible. Hands and feet suit attached versus separate. Emerson described the suit as having hands and feet that were attached to the arms and legs. But Morris made a suit whose hands and feet were separate pieces. Long speculates that Harrison revealed or glued these parts to the suit, but offers no evidence to support the idea. If Harrison had done so, he must have done it before he must did his test fitting and walked. Because Hermes describes a three piece head, torso, and legs, omitting separate hands and feet, i.e., without adjusting their location to his dimensions. And Hermes never describes being measured beforehand. Weird. Uh, Lawrence speculates that the person modified the costume only by attaching Morris's loose hands and feet to the costume. And by replacing Morris's mask, however, there are Nothing he wrote on suit modification. There's no evidence 
testifying that Meyerson changed more suit to horse hide or dye it a darker color or cut it in half at the waist to agree with her, her description. Some films proponents say that Hermes' arms are too short to match that of a Bigfoot and that he has a few inches shorter than the creatures on film, up to 14 inches shorter. But Hermes said he wore football sort of pads, which might explain why the sword's upper and arms appear to be out of proportion to the rest of the body. However, Hermes claims that he used to arms and ain't sticks in his costume and said that he wore gloves a little bit longer than my actual hands were. He also... He, he, I don't clothes. And also... said that Hermas was not as bulky as a creature, but film critics claimed that a suit could correct for that, and for height. However, Hermas did not mention that being padding and there so you were questioned by Lana about the suit. Or seriously asked about patterning by Rob Now on his second Exome radio interview on August 6, 2007. Polygraph tests regarding the claims have been passed by both Hermes and Patterson. <coughs> At the death of Ray Wallace, 2002, following a request by Lauren Coleman to the Seattle Times for Bobby Honor to investigate, Philip Wallace went public with claims that he had started a big fit phone along with. Fake footprints made from a wooden foot chip cut out. That's in California sites in 1958. Uh, Mark Trovitsky, editor of Strange Magazine, promoted Wallace's claims that he tipped off Paris exactly where to look for Bigfoot. Trovitsky wrote, Roger Patterson came over dozens of times puffing me on his Bigfoot. Ray Wallace explained to Richard Shirt, Dennis Palachis in 1982. I saw it far from Roger Patterson. He told me he had cancer lands and definitely broke and he was definitely broke. And he once tried to get something where he could have a little income. Well he went down exactly where I told him. I told him you go down there and hang around on the bank. Stay out there and watch the spot. Watch that spot. David Dangling summarized Jeffrey's argument included that Wallace had agreed of a moment with Paris and Goodman film and this gave grounds for expression of it. Uh, Lauren Coleman had written that Parison was the early Bigfoot investigator, that it was only natural that he sought out and interviewed older Bigfoot event principles, which included Wallace because of the 1958 Bluff Creek track incidents. Coleman had said that Wallace had nothing to do with Parison's footage in 1967, and has <clears throat> argued analysis of the media treatment of death Wallace that the national media reportedly confused Wallace films of the 1970s with Preston Grimm's 1967 film. Dr. Meldrum had written extensively about Wallace and the allegations continued by his family after his death and assistant follows with them in Sasquatch Life Media Science. Okay. Okay.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. Or to find more information about Monster Legend Podcast, go to monsterlegendpodcast.com or anchor.fm forward slash monsterlegendpodcast. There you can find all episodes and platforms on which the podcast is on, which you can describe, subscribe to. You also can email me with questions that will be answered on the show. Thank you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.